0: does have it all all of our pre-owned vehicles are hubler q certified which include a 128 point vehicle inspection a free carfax vehicle history report and two warranties a two-year 100,000 mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day 1,000 mile comprehensive warranty visit any of our 13 locations today or click it all.
1: happy monday to you on the fan midday show Jimmy Cook, Scott Agnes, Eddie Garrison, guiding us throughout the afternoon. Thanks so much for stopping by. Well removed now from the 2023 NBA draft. NBA free agency on the horizon of more reactions to where the Pacers go from here with free agency. Victor Wembenyama, the Spurs number one pick, is making NBA goals look like Fisher Price goals. And his little audition (laughs) tape or first meeting with the media earlier in the week. And the Pacers are well on their way to what they feel like is their last trip now behind them in the NBA draft lottery. Scott, you were at Pacers headquarters covering it all on Thursday. You had the experience last year Mm -hmm. of being in New York for the draft. How was it different this year from your coverage standpoint, being here, getting to see it all from the team's perspective versus the full national flavor with the type of moves that they made, including that trade to go back one spot? to get Jaris Walker
2: yeah I made the executive decision not to go to the draft this year knowing that it's going to be an active draft for the Pacers and I thought it was going to be one more move I thought it'd be a slightly more active but ultimately they made three trades in what 48 hours of the draft and basically the best move they did easily was moving back seven spots and getting four and a half million dollars from the Lakers to do so and Herb Simon says thank you very much. And then on top of that, something that I haven't heard people talk about, by the way, is not only were they able to pick up a couple second round picks, although it's way off in the future. Yeah. 2028 is one of them, and 2029 is the other. But on top of that, by drafting Jarvis Walker one spot later, you save some extra cash too against your cap, uh, your books, your salary cap space as well. About Probably about a half a million dollars um, on rookie scale contracts that first year. So, um, Good work by the Pacers and able to do that. I thought for sure, and they were trying, I really thought they were going to be able to swing a trade leading up to the draft to acquire that wing that they have been after for a while. I will say though, the only thing I wouldn't have liked about it is without a doubt, the seventh pick was on the would have been included. Right. I thought they could have swung a trade without dealing number seven because I thought, as we alluded to I think last week for the one day I was in here it's inc- I thought it was incredibly important for them to have one more swing at the bat hit it doesn't have to be a grand slam but it should get you a triple at least for the foreseeable future Because of the and then not go back to this lottery days again. What do you think about draft night?
1: Well it felt ominous to me in the days leading up that perhaps they wouldn't have as much success in the trade market given that I had thought at least on value with this draft still being viewed by many as a, as a good deep draft, Mm -hmm. even though top heavy for sure. Once you get to the likes of Scoot Henderson, Brandon Miller and Victor women, Then when you get past that, I mean, it's like every year it's a guessing game of who's going to go where and if the pace were to go best available or fit, but going back to the trades before the draft, it felt like if there was going to be a window to get into the 15 to 20 range or move up there for them, to package some of the other draft assets they had this year. We know they made those calls. They were honest about it and said they had tried their best to try to move up, especially when Cam Whitmore was actually in free fall during the draft. That would have been
2: very interesting, right? <laughs> it, would,
1: there. it would have been fascinating to have been able to happen. And obviously he ends up in Houston, and they had mentioned Chubby Cannon had referenced with the with Kevin and Query on Friday that they did their best to try to make a move there, but the value was too much and price was a little bit too steep for where they wanted to go. So I wasn't as perplexed as I thought I would be that there wasn't more activity on the trade market for them. But yeah, the oversighted point that you brought up is that they're able to save a little bit of cash, which you'll ask anybody that's been with a front office <laughs> in a small market before. Anytime you're able to do that and still find the player of need you want you're going to be happy with it. And if Jarris Walker is indeed the type of player that maybe not immediately right away, everybody's got to develop in their own path. But if he's the type of power forward that is there for the Pacers and is a, a cornerstone of what this franchise wants to be in three, four, or five years, we're, we're going to really see an opportunity for them to get back to where they want to go.
2: Yeah, the cash from the Lakers, that's nice for your Herb Simon, right. if you're him. Meanwhile, the, the, the savings for Jarris Walker by the Pacers, that really appeals to the front office and Ted Wu, their salary cap guru, because it gives them just a little bit extra flexibility. It's half a million dollars, but still there's ways to to figure it out and make that more feasible. Um, in terms of being at the draft, you were asking about that. Yeah. I gave a long-winded answer about the, the draft decision and saving money. Um, the, the cool thing about that experience is to f- see them to walk to walk around Uh, on the main floor there at Barclays Center uh, and then to the back rooms and see them do probably more than a dozen different interviews both on camera, radio, a press conference. Then he jumps on a Zoom with the local media which I, I was on back here in Indy. But those guys are worn out yeah. by by basically the car wash, if you will, of the different things that they have to follow. But there's something cool about I remember a couple of years ago with Benedict Matherin, um, there was the practice court weight room, and so I was in there with him for about five minutes, so I was able to get a brief alone time. But in the big picture, he's talking to so many different yeah. outlets. It's not a true you know exclusive or anything like that. But it is a good opportunity to get a feel for the individual, once again. Because, again, Jairus Walker was in town for a workout, and we're fortunate to be able to attend the end of that and talk with him. But I thought it was a really good draft for the Pacers. Um, If they would have been able to complete a trade and either get Cam Whitmore or get a veteran wing, then I thought it would have been an ideal, knocked-it-out-of-the-park type draft for them.
1: Do you expect that type of... Desire to go get a veteran, desire to find a veteran that would help within wing depth, even with the draft they just put together, to be an aggressive takeaway or an aggressive mindset for them with free agency on the horizon?
2: What's really interesting, Jimmy, is they have one roster spot right now after adding two and right. Ben Shepard and Jarris Walker, and they still haven't consolidated their current roster. They slightly did their draft picks. And what did I think I, did I set the over under at two and a half draft you picks? Did. Were you saying three and a half? I forget.
1: I had I felt like that three and a half would probably be a better mark, but okay. I, I,
2: I took the over. And, and it turned out to actually be closer to right. what it was. But two and a half was what I was saying all along of what I thought the draft picks would be. And I think ideally they would have bundled a couple more of them and, a say, current player and being able to get a Cam Whitmore. The trouble is what happened with Minnesota a year ago. Rudy Gobert in Minnesota and new owner syndrome with A-Rod and his partner there completely inflated prices. So much like you go in the grocery or buying ticket pri- tickets or whatever, what it costs to go get a player is significantly more than what it had been. Again, if you're talking about an OG Obi, for example... That's going to be probably four first-round picks. And by the way, as we discussed last week, he's only under contract for one more year. So you can't restrict yourself like that, send out so many future assets without certainly an agreement in place for the long term. And there's kind of ways you can go around that, but not exactly. You and I are in the same boat
1: on evaluating draft trades and evaluating just trades in general with how market value is impacted on it that you're going to see response from teams once a big deal like that is made but I think you and I are also in the same boat that before we continue with this, the Rudy Gobert trade was a horrific trade. I was not a fan of it in any capacity. Ever. and Not then, that, that, that not was, now. That, that was by no means a controversial take. A lot of people gave pushback when the move happened, which begs this question, because you go to the NFL and the thought had been, especially with out in Baltimore, the Lamar Jackson contract negotiations of whether or not they'd be able to agree on a deal. And what a lot of people pointed to, myself included, was, well, perhaps... The move that the Browns made to go get Deshaun Watson, which was again a trade that involved multiple first round picks, and then they wound up giving him a fully guaranteed contract of the highest order, something the league had never seen. Some had thought that a move like that completely resets a market. You're going to see now at the bargaining table guaranteed contracts be the norm in the NFL. True. We're a year removed from that, and that has not been the case. But in the NBA, with that trade of a treasure trove of draft picks, it still feels like they were quicker to adapt to. If you're a front office that sees what happened in the Rudy Gobert deal, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We want something like that in return. This is truly the standard. So I find that fascinating. And and why do you think that is with both leagues that, on the one hand, something that felt like it could be precedent changing completely has gone by the wayside? Owners don't want to give guaranteed money. We've had this discussion before. But with the NBA, when you still have a trade like that for a above-average player in Rudy Gobert, by no means a, a superstar player, that is still had ripple effects in the NBA. Dude, I'm not sure he's an all-star.
2: I mean, again, I'm not going <laughs> to fully tear down the yeah, guy, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, you watch him in the playoffs and teams hunt him. Yeah, they don't stay away from him because of the challenge. They target him. They put him in pick and roll situations, things like that. That's a dead giveaway. I, I like to see what players think of him. And you can observe that both in how they vote for the All-Stars now and you can observe that in the playoffs if they reach the playoffs. And I thought it was very odd, too, is yesterday they agreed to a deal with their like backup center. So now they have three centers. <laughs> On their roster, to me, I think you got to move Carl Anthony Towns. And yeah, Nas that's Reed a, got
1: that extension. Yeah, Nas right, Reed. Yep. I think
2: I think Carl Anthony Towns is the one you move. You're not going to be able to move Rudy Gobert. But to your bigger point, yeah, in terms of Rudy Gobert and and that situation, you, you saw the trickle down effect in terms of even whatever that was a month ago. Like we're through Kevin a trade Durant deadline into the Phoenix right, Suns. Right. The Suns gave everything they were possibly able to give any any additional first-round picks they had left, which I don't think they did, so they had to right. pick swap, and then like all their second-round picks for this decade. Because, remember, at the trade deadline, they agreed to the deal to acquire him from Brooklyn, and in doing so, sent out a treasure trove there before the Suns were able to, um, this most recent deal, acquiring Bradley Beal right. from the Washington Wizards.
1: And at least with Kevin Durant, it makes sense, right? Like, if the Rudy Gobert trade, if you turn the clocks back and it's a trade for Kevin Durant that is of that high of value, particularly of first-round assets, I can get behind that. Like That's not as head-scratching to me as the deal itself for Rudy Gobert. With Bradley Beal, the injury and the health concerns <laughs> are there. I've never been a, a, a viewpoint of him being because of the health and because of he's been on such a poor team. Of If you put him on a good roster, what would he actually be if he could stay healthy? And I get the Phoenix Suns wanting to be in this win now mode of, we're going to still keep alive this big three era. I guess big four from a salary standpoint, if you include DeAndre Ayton in there, but still very much a 2010s way of roster construction. Those type of trades I get, but I'm talking about the fact that there's still pushback for players that are around Rudy Gobert's talent level, or maybe a little bit better. Like, OG Anubi a better player than Rudy Gobert, but I don't know that he's a better player than Kevin Durant, but you still see these franchises because of the Gobert trade not willing to back down from no, it's it's three or four three or four first rounders is how yeah. you get to the table.
2: The one I feel like really set this off that I remember was whatever, five years ago, Anthony Davis from New Orleans yeah. to the Lakers. They gave up a ton, mm-hmm. but they also won a title so great. The other one I was very curious what they gave up because it didn't feel like a lot at the time. But it was Drew Holiday. From Milwaukee, and ultimately it was much more than I thought as Milwaukee gave up three first-round picks and two pick swaps because I thought I remembered at the time thinking, wow, that's nothing for Drew Holiday, and guess what? They went on to win a title, We're so done. that was absolutely worth it, whatever you gave up here. Um, but you're, you're seeing, I think, it's obvious if, if it's a guy like Kevin Durant. You're going to give up any and everything. You're going to have to. But what about that next tier? OG Ananobi. Not an all-star. Right. And you're wanting four and five first-round picks. That makes it difficult. And then another guy they were in on, DeAndre Hunter down in Atlanta. Young guy. Little high contract, I think, is part of the issue. Is starting like a four-year, $90 million deal this upcoming season. You would know you have his contract under control, though, if you acquired him. Tobias Harris, another player they ex- they expressed interest to and had some talks with the 76ers about, nothing significant. Tobias Harris is interesting because right now they have over $30 million in cap space. They could swing a, a one-year deal for a guy like that. Tobias Harris only under contract, one more season, but then you'd want to have him under contract after that. And without that guarantee, again, that was a situation where – Pacers are sitting there and like, we can't give up so much for a guy, at least today, we're not certain we'll be here for one more year because otherwise it makes a ton of sense. Right. That would be a great use of their cap space this upcoming year. It fills the need on the wing, a guy that's under underproduced and really could use a fresh scenery, if you will, I think, here with the Pacers, a new team and that sort of thing. And then you would hope you could be able to re-sign him for another three years and get something a little bit more affordable. Maybe it's three years, 80 million after that.
1: As you look at the path that they're on, I mean, we're both in agreement. Leave no stone unturned. If you're able to find something that speeds this process along or helps develop the rookies, then by all means, do it via trade. If you're able to get a price that is palatable for you again we already mentioned with the og and Anobi rumors just the ramifications with rudy gobert's trade that yeah the asking price or starting price for even players that could potentially grow into all-star level or above players at least in the eyes of the franchise that holds their rights are three or four first rounders with free agency on the horizon and you look at the needs this team still needs to address with the cap space that's there is the door in your mind closed on trades being the answer to fill that role I no. think at this point it's free agency and if if not as you said there where, where's the best value in your mind right now as we look at this free agency class
2: There's th- that's that's all. why I don't think right the door can be shut Jimmy on those on possibly acquiring teams one teams that need to get off money secondly you got to remember with this new CBA collective bargaining agreement that takes effect July 1 no longer can teams wait to hit the salary floor until this time next year Usually it doesn't matter until July 1, June 30th of the previous yeah. year. Starting this year, I forget what the exact date is, but basically let's call it opening day. Teams have to be above that salary of four, which means I think the Pacers need to spend roughly another $18 million to hit that without facing penalty. Is and that so including course,
1: the, us simming out what the rookie contracts will be?
2: Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's including these rookie contracts okay. um, for the two first-round picks. Sure. That's all that matters. So it's in
1: this. $18 million on top of that for the two first-rounders. They're not a part yeah. of the $18 million figure? Correct. Okay.
2: Correct. And that's just a rough ballpark we're talking about here. 15, 18 million or so is, I think, the number they have to hit at. So, you know, there's going to be movement there. Again, you need clarity in the front court. I think you have to move on from at least one of those bigs. We cannot run it back with Jalen Smith and Isaiah Jackson. Oh, and don't forget, what's Daniel Tice's role? I'm not sure anybody knows just yet. He does fill a great need. You love that experience. But also, I think he's more built for a team ready to win now. You, he could feel that veteran influence while also being a the backup center. I'd have a hard time seeing him the third-string center. And if that, how much are you negatively impacting the development of either a first-round pick you drafted three years ago in Isaiah Jackson or in Jalen Smith, who you're very high of, is under contract for certain for another year. you got to figure that out. And then I think there's the, the question of shooting guard a little bit, especially as you bring in another one. And Ben Shepard, who can play the two and three, so maybe he spends more time at the three. Um, but with Chris Duarte, with Buddy Healed, you can include Andrew Nemhard in that conversation because he started at the two for much of this past season. That too, to me, needs some clarity.
1: How likely is it, and he's been the common trade piece or common just he needs to be moved at some point, Topic of conversation as you bring up Chris Duarte, Jimmy Cook, Scott Agnes here on the Fan Midday Show. What's the likelihood that he is on this roster by the time training camp rolls around? Because yeah, I don't I, I don't I didn't know if I saw a home for him here before the draft. And then you figure at least in terms of Mao's defeat and where they want roles and developments to be. Ben Shepard would likely leapfrog him, at least in terms of looking down at what this season could be. And they went when they took Duarte with the idea of this is a player that's ready right now, that has had multiple years in college, that doesn't need as much time to develop, but with how the roster's been constructed, and and obviously he's dealt with an injury as well, but it hasn't been as easy or as plug-and-play as they thought it would be with Duarte.
2: Yeah, but I would blow back, push back a little bit there. I wouldn't foresee Ben uprooting Chris's position. Remember, he's a rookie. This is all new to him. Now, like Chris Duarte... He's a mature four-year guy that's coming into the league. But this first year, it's a whirlwind. You haven't played in any of these venues, really. You're still traveling. You're playing three times as many games as you previously did. And keep in mind, he played at Belmont. So the competition he went up against, this is not just another level. This is probably three steps up to what he faced. Now he's an incredible shooter, and that translates to any game. I'm curious what it'll look like initially defensively. And so if Chris – with Chris, if you can see him do what he did defensively his rookie year, he's really going to be an impactful player because we know he can shoot. That was just about him trying to find his place. I think early in the season he was a little bit out of whack. You know, whose role is it? Whose team is this? Is okay, Matherin's the the fun young guy. Like he's getting all the attention. I think he Chris really had to settle in, take ownership of what his role could be. But he was he liked the rest of the team mostly. Terrible defensively. And so, if he can get back to what he was rookie, his rookie year, improve upon that, not have a season injury-filled, because I think it was last off season he was dealing with a little yeah. bit of an ankle injury as well. I actually had heard at summer league, look out, he's probably going to need surgery here. Well, it didn't happen, but there were those concerns back then, which you know means that was something floated through Chris's mind as well. So, no, I, I'm still intrigued by Chris, but I also recognize maybe a more ready team would be interested in his services, whereas the Pacers just added another guy. at similar position right there. But I will say, too, Chris's value is lower than it once was. Lower than it was beginning of last season and certainly before that or after that at the trade deadline. So you don't want to sell low, and so that's a, that's something the Pacers have to consider.
1: What's a successful campaign for him then? Because, again, obviously he's not your, your starting two guard or, or or starting at the three at this point. The lineup that we would likely see next year, if everything's perfect from development standpoint, and they want to pull the trigger on Jarius Walker, would be some combination of of Tyrese Halliburton,
2: Benedict Matherin, Jarius Walker, Miles Turner, and then Andrew Dem- Andrew Nem-Hard. Nemhard. Right? I mean that defense. Right. You have to. I think. I think that's what I'm looking at right now. That's how I would project it out. And that's assuming that Buddy's good with coming off the bench,
1: taking so, the back seat. So, in that, so in that scenario, you don't have him in. You don't have Buddy in the starting
2: five. Is that what you are saying? No, Matherin is my Matherin. starting. Okay, I'm three. sorry. When you said Buddy, I was okay. My fault. Yes. Yeah. Right. You I think, think that's something he's okay with. I don't know that. I'm saying he has to be okay sure. with that, or that if it hasn't had happened already, that's a conversation that will absolutely be had. Yeah. And the one concern I would have for that is him and Tyrese play so well off each other. Tyrese attacks and knows Buddy's available. They can. Those guys communicate without communicating out there. They're, they're so comfortable with each other going into year four here. And then Buddy spaces the floor so well. is a great three-point shooter, understands the pushback that's healthy with Tyrese. Um, so that would take a little bit getting used to. And I'd actually want to do something where maybe you stagger him. So maybe Matherin's the first sub out and Buddy's the first sub in. If he's comfortable with that, which I think at this stage, if they could be a playoff team, how could he not be? Because that's his number one goal right now. He wants to be part of a team that finally reaches the postseason. He's in his 30s already. This dude's competitive as hell, watched every bit of the playoffs. He's working out every day at his home gym, which is incredible. And he wants to play in the playoffs. So give me your five real quick on opening day. Tyrese Halliburton. As of today, again, trades. anything could happen. For sure. No
1: idea what free agency is going to, but as you look at it right now, yeah. with
2: needs they need start a free agency, where's their five? Yeah, I think right now you're looking Halliburton, Andrew Nemhard, Benedict Matherin, Jerris Walker, and Miles Turner.
1: Okay. So I, so I, I wanted to make sure I didn't mishear you because I, I, I think I added six players in my starting five. I I'm, would sub healed for Nemhard in my best, five you could have out there on opening
2: night that's right not be. a ton of defense though. sure that's the struggle yep. right there and and if you're throwing a now i mean you have my you basically you have a, a front court of defenders miles who's sure. proven what he can do and Jerris can that's the biggest but also your, aspect of that of having that front but also court. your rookie so there's the little nuances to the game yeah. he's got to pick up on it's not just instinctual sure. it's instinctual
3: the only Person I could see subbing out would be Nimhart, but I wouldn't think they would sub him out for Hield. I could see them subbing him out for Aaron Neesmith because you need Neesmith's you know defense along the wing to help with Walker with. The being such a driven league around the wings and the guard position and plus Neesmith's the guy that you can just go help space the floor a little bit sure you get an extra ball handle out there with Andrew Nimhard, but how often are you asking Nimhard to handle the basketball with
2: Tyrese on the floor to me the number the two spot is the only one I feel like is in question yeah you know if your core is Tyrese and Benedict you're going in with that bunch and who knows it could be
3: a, a game-to-game matchup to matchup scenario
2: it could be for the most part, I'm generally opposed to that. I like the consistency, yep. the routine of that. To me, that speaks of we're still trying to figure it out. I think we all know what those guys are. Now, if there's a Ben has a bad week of practice or just a couple bad performances in a row, maybe you tweak it up to try to get him and others going. But to me, that two the two man spot's the only one that's in question, and it could just depend what what you need. Or what's working well. So it could be Nemhard, could be Buddy, could be Duarte, but probably not. But again, you you really need a shooter out there. Right. And Nemhard's a really good shooter, so that helps. Because Ben, he needs to shoot more threes, but he's going to look to attack. Tyrese, look to attack. And you got Walker and Miles already in the middle. That two spot to me really, Jimmy, has to be a guy on the perimeter who's a real threat you have to guard him whether he has the ball or not
1: i would have a hard time if i'm buddy healed stomaching coming off the bench at this stage of my career for a, the amount of money i'm making and be the fact that i started 73 games last year i mean i know nothing is guaranteed in this league like, you can't just oh well, he started 73 games so he should be the starter
2: hold on i gotta correct you only sure. because i love his story sure he only missed two games right last i'm just
1: night. going off of espn i apologize buddy healed that's that's that, uh,
2: he only missed two games and it was because of the uh health issue. Right. He played in 80, but he started 73. Oh, so, I'm sorry. You started. Said start. 73 games. I meant played. Okay. Right. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Played an And 80, the only reason he didn't start every game right. was because late in the season they said, "Let's see what Buddy looks like right. in the starting lineup."
1: If the unless it is if A, like you mentioned Buddy buys into that and it is a true upgrade defensively like this team's numbers are showing over a 5 10 15 game sample size that Yeah, having Nemhard in the starting lineup helps in terms of setting the tone defensively and being where we want to be in that area moving forward. I'd be fine with it. If not, the amount of money that he's making and the value he would still hold in the trade market, if if that's what Buddy Heald's role is on the bench, I I feel more aggressive towards my thought of he should be shot before the deadline than I do now if that's
2: what ends up happening. Let's go a different route then. Let's say, what does the bench look like? Because that becomes really interesting. Let's say Andrew Andrew Nemhard's the one. Maybe you bring him off the bench. You start Buddy. I get you keep starting Buddy, and I, I would not oppose of this. I just think Matherin at this stage now should start. I was great with him not last year. That's totally fine. I know a lot of fans were upset about that. It didn't bother me one bit. Especially when after the season, Ben admitted, you know what? It it was a good season. It could have been great. There are times I took, I you know, I mentally wasn't there. I didn't play as hard as I want. Like, I appreciated the honesty and the candor from him. But I'm seeing that second unit could be Andrew Nembhard, Chris Duarte. I kind of lean Jalen Smith as the center. And Jordan Wara, Aaron NeSmith. Am I missing someone? In terms of what, the Timothy second unit John like. McConnell? And yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that becomes that. Yeah, where do you find time for him? That becomes difficult because you absolutely do. You're right. You got to throw TJ in there sometime, probably before Duarte. That's probably what it is. It's TJ, Andrew, and then a mix of what you need. See, that's again why they need to consolidate because they have so many players right now that you could make a great case for, starting with, I think, Daniel Tice, Jalen Smith, and Isaiah Jackson. This is the Fan Midday Show. Thanks for listening here on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Coming up at 12.30, we'll talk to IMG's director of basketball. He knows Jairus Walker very well as Jairus spent four years down at IMG. Coming up at 1 o'clock. Bo Estes of NBA and NBA.com. And then at 2 o'clock, let's look ahead a little bit more to free agency, talk big picture in the NBA. Keith Smith, Spotrak, a cap guru will join us to discuss all things big picture from the NBA beyond the Pacers. This is the Fan Midday Show on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Good afternoon. Thanks for listening to the Fan Midday Show with Jimmy Cook. I'm Scott Agnes. Let's go right to the hotline to learn more about the Pacers' top draft pick, Jarris Walker. We're joined with Brian Nash, the IMG Director of Basketball. Joining us on the hotline, Brian, how are you and what was your reaction last Thursday seeing not only Jarris taken by the Pacers, but at least a couple other former IMG players?
5: Yeah, Scott and Jimmy, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it was a it was a great night. It's like one of those nights where you're like a proud parent, and uh, anytime you can, you know, when you have one player drafted, it's a, it's kind of a dream come true. And then when you get three players in the top sixteen picks, it was uh, it was kind of a surreal night for us.
2: How much conversation can you share that maybe you had with the Pacers and and, and talking about Jarris Walker and, and previewing what's to come? I'm sure they had you know uh, uh, significant conversations trying to understand his game and what he's about and one thing they highlighted was how with img he started kind of as a point guard and it evolved into a much bigger player after that
5: yeah i think uh you know when, when we go through this process every year uh i think a lot of the questions that we get are you know background stuff and character and and those things i think a lot of the scouts do a good enough job with with watching the kids play over the course of time and kind of finding out what their skill set is and those things, but uh, yeah, no, Jarris is—he's uh, he, a special talent. Um, you know, I, I think the, the Pacers got a, a really good one. Uh, not only a, a very good player, but just a high character person.
1: Brian, what were your initial reactions and perspective when Jarris Walker shows up on IMG Academy's campus as a freshman?
5: Yeah, this is the this is kind of a funny one. He he had visited um, you know, he was the number one eighth grader in the country, um, you know, for whatever that's worth in regards to that nowadays. Yeah. Um, but you know, he walked in and he looked like Larry Johnson. I mean, he was six six, he was two hundred and thirty five pounds, he was chiseled and you and said, Oh my god, this kid's really gonna be a freshman next year So we were super excited to to get him in the program and uh Again, just uh, the the way he was able to compete as a you know as a freshman on a on a team that had three other NBA players on it and came in and and you know really just invested in hard work and, and was coachable and you know that's one of those things that. think everybody looks for so much in value in players i mean just uh he kind of hit the ground running and and we were so excited for what the future was going to be
2: joined with brian nash img's director of basketball where jairus walker played high school ball down there when you when you think of jairus and his development where do you think you saw the most improvement over all those years and then becoming a one-and-done player at houston
5: yeah. Um so he's he's kinda unique. I mean the, the the I I've used the term with him like he's a Swiss Army knife. Like he can you know, he can do a little bit of everything. I know he's got the reputation and, and a lot of the things that were talked about with him were, you know, being a, a great defender. Um I, I know that he that was demanded of him here and I know Coach uh Coach Samson at, at Houston demands that and that's a big part of what they do. But, you know, he does his 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 shooting has improved so much over the years. His ability to make plays off the dribble and either score for himself or make decisions for his teammates. So, again, I think, uh, you know, that's, that's one of those good things about him is that he's, he's going to be able to find a way to impact the game in, in multiple areas.
1: Brian, we know obviously from his story that Jairus is the first player to go through IMG Academy for all four years, and with a program that's on the basketball side, really only been around since 2000, and the national spotlight has been on you guys for the better part of a decade. How has that selling process for what IMG Academy can do for a young player changed over time, and with Jarvis kind of being the guinea pig for what can happen if you're there all four years uh, what are your takeaways from what his departure and his ultimate journey as he continues in the NBA can do over at IMG
5: yeah he's definitely uh become the poster child for us for for, for a lot of our conversations when families are interested um you know the the, the basketball piece here is 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 off the charts I and mean, it's fantastic they're going to you know, they're going to get great coaching. They're going to get great uh, development over the course of the time. But the the, the thing that we're real fortunate about at, at the academy is we take a holistic approach. So every team's got their access to their own nutritionist. They have a leadership coach. They have a mental conditioning coach. Um, they've gotten into the sports science side with load management. So I think they just they, they learn to have a pro mentality at an earlier stage. And they're in a super competitive environment, and their schedule, um, you know, the the, the the elite youth basketball world right now with, uh, you know, some of these really good high school teams in the AAU has kind of set it up where you're always competing against the best players. Um, so, you know, JARUS, for us to go through and be that first four-year player… And to, you know, see the full growth, not only just as a player, but as a person, Um, you know, for us, that's amazing. And, uh, you know, just for Jarrus to actually achieve his goals, is just, it makes us super happy.
2: Brian Nash of IMG with us. Brian, it reminds me to a lesser extent of a lot of these foreign players who start going pro at, at 16 and 17. It's not quite to that level, but it's when you can really start taking the game more seriously, Have those pro aspects to your game, go out away from home, being in an uncomfortable environment in terms of being away from friends and those sorts of things, and really try to center and focus on your future if you're that type of high-level athlete.
5: Yeah, and then the the good thing about us too within our so so we have multiple teams at each one of our I mean we had eighteen basketball teams last year but we do have a, a national structure where you know we have a post grad national team which has got fifty years and older kids so. Our, our high school teams are, you know, in, in, in the way we have our daily practices, I mean, they compete against each other in practice, um, you know, multiple times over the course of the year. So it, it, it's not like you're just with your high school team and you compete against each other every day. Well, we're able to put them in different positions where they can play against older players, um, you know, players that have height, players that have size. So it's a, you know, it's a very competitive environment.
1: When you look back at Jairus' senior year and the final conversations before he ended up at Houston, what were the biggest areas that you guys felt at IMG as you were working with him? He needed to take that jump at Houston to be able to have the one-and-done outcome that he did. And as you look at his game now, obviously to be able to go where he did in the draft and finish one-and-done at a program like Houston is an accomplishment in and of itself. But where do you want to continue to see him grow as he ends up here in Indiana?
5: Yeah, I think so. His senior year was, I mean, if we go back quickly to his progression, he comes in as a freshman and, you know, he's fitting in and he's playing his role um, a lot more inside, a lot more physical. And and then as you grow as a player, you always want to expand your game. You want to be, you want to play on the perimeter. You want to work in your perimeter shooting. Um, And, you know, he started doing that sophomore, junior year. He had an injury in there where he missed some time, but he struggled a little bit and I think the struggle is good because I think the struggle helps you find out the best version of yourself and who you are and his senior year for us I mean he took on a role where you know what winning was the most important thing it was coach whatever role you want me to play and you know he played a lot of center for us our our senior year because that was that's what was going to help us win so I think as he translated into college, I think he was ahead of the game because he knew what he was. And I think he knew how he could be successful. And I think that's why he continues to, you know, he knows what those skill set areas are. Um, He knows he can be a a really good defender. He knows he's a great rebounder. And then his offensive game is going to keep evolving. So again, I think that's some of the reasons why, you know, and, and, and Coach Sampson obviously did a phenomenal job with him in a year. And and putting them in, a, in such a competitive environment. I mean, you, you look at that program and everything they've done, and um, you know just how competitive they are. I think that helps set Jairus up as well.
2: And Brian, those same traits you listed are, I think, the same things we saw at Houston. He was like the fourth option. He took a back seat to Marcus Sasser and and others there. He was their best defender. He, he was willing to play multiple positions. Didn't need to shoot, but he did when he could. And and I think one of the real values in a player coming to the NBA if you're not that top, top tier, is knowing your role, owning owning it, and you can make hundreds of millions of dollars just locking in. I mean, take a look at Draymond Green, right, for example, of knowing who you are and what you're about. And the other thing, Brian, I think that impresses me about Jarris is his family situation. He's got three older sisters. And that whole thing of how that shaped him, but at the same time being away from them, at him, and them at IMG, I think probably helped in his maturity at a young age. Is that one of the big sales points of IMG as well? Yeah, I mean
5: it's it's not for everybody. Um, you know, again, I think in his situation, you know, Horace and Marcia, you know, mom and dad are you know just, just great parents. I mean, there there's a the story that we tell about I think it was Jaris's third or fourth week in school down here where, you know, he just got in a little bit of trouble in the dorm. I mean, it wasn't anything serious, but it was just kind of uh, it gave Horace an opportunity to call down here and said, you know what, my son doesn't act like this. I don't know if this is the place for him and threaten to have him out of here after the first three or four weeks. So uh, it kind of gives you, you know, the discipline of the family, the tough love and, uh you know, Jarvis wanted this. I mean, Jarvis wanted the break. He wanted to, you know, he didn't want to be penalized for a great opportunity. And, you know, I think he articulated that to his family and was able to, you know, convince them that this was going to be the best place for him.
1: Brian, as you look at the growth of IMG Academy and you're simulating and mapping out what the next five to 10 years looks like for you guys down in Florida, what do you envision that process being now that, as we've already talked about, you have a four year player that's gone through the ranks and now has made it to the NBA?
5: Yeah, no. This uh, you know, this world is getting competitive. It's a little bit of a trickle down now with what's happening in colleges, where you know kids are starting to talk about NIL more, and uh, you know the schools won't have collectives themselves. But as the states start to, uh, the state associations start to allow NIL for high school players. I mean, that's that's impacting where kids go. So um, you know, recruiting gets a little bit tougher, there are options out there we uh, we play in a great league. the NIBC which is the premier high school league in the country, which is a great draw for us because the kids know they're going to play against the best players every year um, but you know when you have the success of uh, you know three players drafted in in the top sixteen and you know we have fourteen players that are playing in the NBA right now. Um, and then, when people are fortunate enough to visit campus and they see the facilities and the people down here, um, you know I think we can we're not really going to try to change too much we're just going to try to do it a little bit better and uh, you know just just uh, keep keep continuing that holistic approach with
2: the kids. Talking with Brian Nash of the IMG, Director of Basketball. Brian, I want to pivot one one question here, and that's because Zach Eady, Purdue star, spent some time down at IMG and now is crushing it at Purdue, had serious conversations about going to the NBA, but ultimately is going to return to Purdue. Can you kind of describe maybe what you felt like he was like when he arrived on campus there at IMG, um, maybe the rawness to his game, and now where he's at as well? the top basketball player in college last year
5: yeah i don't think uh i don't think anybody could have uh, guessed or you know forecasted the trajectory of where he's at um you know zach had zach was from canada and one of one of when i had coached in college one of my former players was coaching him on the aau circuit and said hey i, I want you to take a look at this kid he's you know he's, he's big he's massive he's you know, the one thing that stood out was that as big as he was and he had only been playing for a couple of years was that he had really good hands and really exactly. good feet. And, you know, we, we we decided to, you know, take a chance on him. And, um, you yeah, he didn't play on our national team the first year that he got here. We wanted him to get a lot of playing time and develop and, you know, not kind of stun his growth by throwing him into too competitive of an environment. And then his senior year he played on our national team and, again, played with – Mark Williams, who had gotten drafted uh, by Charlotte, played yeah. at Duke. And, you know, he, he had to fight for everything that he got. But, you know, started showing some flashes. But, um, again, the, the stuff that he's done, that, that he's been able to do at Purdue and what Matt's done with them is, you know, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, it's just so Super happy for him as well, too.
2: Yeah, that's a remarkable track because now he's about to probably be at center for the Canadian national team coming up in the World Cup. So quite a ride for him. Brian, thanks so much for the time and educating us on a little bit about what Jairus was like down at IMG. Appreciate it.
5: I appreciate your time. Thanks, guys.
2: That's (laughs) (laughs) that's brian nash of img i laughed because i said thank you and siri goes you're welcome (laughs) hey
1: siri just wanted to be involved in the uh that's fantastic she's
2: just listening into my uh (laughs) our conversation here but no that's interesting that go i mean my biggest takeaway jimmy from all that is (laughs) jairus all 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 the all the series are now going off in the studio so that's where we're at it's good it is that's great biggest takeaway is jairus is exactly who he has been He's yeah. willing to be a team player. He knows his role. He embraces that. He knows he needs to become a better shooter. But he's going to lock into what he can do defensively and his versatility on both ends of the floor. And he has those principles instilled, uh, learned from his sisters, his parents, and at the IMG Academy for four years. That's helped shape him to who he is here as you know, 19-year-old, 20-year-old walking into the Pacers now.
1: It's fascinating to have that in your back pocket. I mean, obviously, it's nothing that is on Jairus Walker's mind on the day-to-day. But to be able to be the poster child for a program that gets as much notoriety and is involved within the prep level as IMG Academy is, is pretty special. And then, yeah, I mean, he mentioned that Larry Johnson comp of when he walked in as an eighth grader. That's a great visual, right? It is a beautiful visual to the point that that stayed with Jairus Walker to this point in times, a lot of different mock draft sites, most notably the Ringer, have used that player comp for him. Again, however much you dabble in that or not, we have a discussion like that every year of what's the real value of player I think that Ryder's based in Florida, but too, probably, so that exactly. makes sense. Yeah, so it's just funny. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, no, I, I think Pacer fans are going to really like what Jarris is able to contribute to this team. And the first opportunity to see him and some of these young Pacers like Ben Shepard, the other first-round pick will be on Saturday, July 8th. And a little sense of humor, I think, by the NBA. The first game comes against the Washington Wizards. So you'll get to see uh, him go against the team that technically drafted him. It's it's all an awkward <laughs> thing. And this is something I previewed going into the draft that be prepared. You need to read up and make sure you know who's drafting where because it's utterly confusing. And still is. I had casual fans like, wait, who is this Bil- Belay? Is that who the pick? No, they did not draft him. Yeah. The Pacers basically got two second-round picks, along with saving on some money and drafting Jarris at eight instead of seven, all for doing what they wanted to do ultimately. But yeah, that'll be fun. Are you going to be out in Vegas? Have you decided just I yet? Don't, I don't think so. Okay, yeah, maybe you got to man. I know if you can. I know. I want to get back out there. But it remains one of my, f- probably honest. my favorite NBA event each yep. year because it's essentially the NBA convention. Right. Exactly. No. Anybody within the league yep. with teams, players, coaches. I'm Tyrese Halliburton. I guarantee we'll be out there. And you may not know this, but before the summer league team maybe practices or plays later in the day, any of the like main guys talking, you know, Miles Turner, Tyrese, that are out there, they'll probably go through a workout in the morning with the Pacers coaches. That's in large part why they go out. They also are there to show up and, and support their new teammates and get to know them a little bit and see their games. But the one thing I heard a lot about was Tyrese and O'Shea Brissett, um, in particular, playing every morning pickup against the Toronto Raptors guys that were all in town. So you never know. It's a it's it's just so much fun running into agents, yeah. Um, manager, like everybody within the NBA, broadcasters, everybody's out there for ten days.
1: It's a great time. I Scott mentioned it's it's very well put. It is the NBA's convention and a great opportunity to be able to not only go out there and see the young stars tomorrow, but also be able to, as Scott mentioned, kind of bump shoulders with the rest of the league. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have more on where the Pacers go from free agency now that the draft is behind them. Plus, speaking of summer league, Bo Estes, one of the heads of the sports business classroom out there in Las Vegas, as well as the voice of NBA.com's top 10 and a frequent contributor on NBA TV, will join us as we keep looking ahead towards the countdown to NBA free agency on the fan.
4: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
2: Welcome back into the Fan Midday Show with Jimmy Cook and Eddie Garrison. I'm Scott Agnes. One of the interesting trends, Jimmy, at the top of the draft, looking back to last Thursday night, was how many non-college basketball players... We're taken in the top five.
1: Two thousand one was the last time you had that many outside of the mm-hmm. college ranks. Go one, two, three, four,
2: five. In the top seven, just two: Brandon Miller at two from Alabama, and Anthony Black at six from Arkansas. Otherwise, you had a wide array of options here represented. Two from the league overseas that Victor played in: Metropolitan's ninety-two. You had a G League Ignite, and then you had the Thompson Twins from Overtime Elite. I'm a, I was a little surprised how much hype or love overtime elite got because i'm still not sure what to make of it I, mean, I I think we need to see how these thompson twins look this first year also were they kind of brought in to be the faces of the program to try to build it up and then we'll see what it looks like i think i still need more info there in terms of the g league ignite if you ask anybody about that team i think it's mostly been a failure the team is not competitive they play like twelve games a year. It does give them an opportunity to solely focus on basketball, to solely play NBA competition from a competitive standpoint. Out of the what was it, G League showcase? I th- they were losing by twenty yeah. and thirty points. And this was, you know, they're also having players in and out of the lineup and those sorts of things. The other thing here to consider: yes, you do get paid decently compared to maybe an NIL package you could get for the same money. But there's no branding in terms of I don't think most people watching the draft had at least your casual fans had much idea about Scoot Henderson, his game. I bet they couldn't pick him out uh, of one of five players out on the, the stage. And I think that's a real challenge. There's a lot of people that in turn made it difficult, Jimmy, in terms of recognizing these players when you start at the top of the draft and five of the top seven outside of maybe Victor there's not a lot of familiarity with for the casual fans.
1: Look, the NBA has made this bed for themselves, which is that over the last couple of CBAs, they've made it clear that they have no interest in changing their straight up high school rule. Yep. They want that still in place. They want you to be a year removed from your senior year of high school. And then you can go ahead and join the NBA draft in the past. Perhaps it's, oh go play overseas or, or, you know, go figure out your own path or just go to college for a year. But now with that indecision to change it, the NBA waited a little bit too long to start their own G League program. It allowed other pathways like Overtime Elite, even though they're still relatively new on the block, but it allowed these other avenues to take shape to where it's not just two pathways. It's not college or G League. It's college, G League, Overtime Elite, still the overseas path. They've yet to quantify an area and a major selling point where if you are not going to college... You were coming to the G League. That's what they wanted that to be. And for overtime elite, until the NBA modifies its rules, you're right. We need to see the Thompson Twins prove it. But they are officially the first to market in terms of we are now a part of this conversation for young high schoolers to go with us after your senior year and we'll get you to the NBA. I don't view the Thompson twins as a knock against them in terms of, Oh, well, what did they really do with the overtime elite? Because yeah, they were basically exhibitions. We had Seth Greenberg on, yeah. he mentioned that, but I mean, exhibition versus getting walloped by journeymen or multiple different players that are on two ways in the G league. I don't see the massive gap in terms of what was available to both these sections from a development standpoint. And that's a problem for the NBA. The G League Ignite should be the clear and obvious path of this is where you should go for your best shot of making the league. And I'm not saying it hasn't been that, but it hasn't had the type of success and takeoff I think they envisioned it would.
2: Yeah, what percentage of basketball fans do you think watched one G League game? <laughs> one G League game or one G oh, League Ignite game? I am saying one G League I game. I mean... What percentage of Pacer fans I watched bet, one Mad Ants game last
1: I, year? I, I bet... It's a very small number, but I bet if you... Company the G League and don't just make it G League night. It's probably mm-hmm. slightly higher yeah. because there's there's crazy fans out there, right? Like there are <laughs> like you view that some people view and that's what the G League wants to be as a developmental system, a minor league system like it is in baseball. That hasn't quite reached those heights yet, starting to more and more with the two way deals. But yeah, Scott, I mean, it's a, it's a very low number. I would ask the same question, though. How many people not highlights, not clips on overtime.com, Yeah. How many t- people have watched overtime elite games?
2: Half of whatever you think for right, the G. Game. Correct. And here, here's my bigger issue with overtime elite is if you're a, this is why being there in person, I think, is critical for an overtime elite game for the scouts because you can't <laughs> the stout, I don't know what to make of the stats. Yeah. Right. Asar Thompson made named two time MVP the last two years. What does that mean in context of the competition he's playing against each night? In practice, those sorts of things. I have no doubt they they could have that improvement individually when you're focused on basketball almost entirely, less school, those sorts of things. But those stats, it's hard to compare. And that that's another wrench in all this that those that get paid to do this year-round have to be able to figure out. We're
1: going to take a quick break. When we return, Bo Estes of NBA.com and NBA TV's Top 10 will join us. We'll get Bo's takeaway from the Pacers draft. We'll take a trip down to Houston as well and also get you set for NBA Summer League and NBA Free Agency with Bo Estes of NBA.com on the fan.
4: Whether it's audiobooks or all time greatest hits. Long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kiskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqali.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kiskali is right for you.
1: Welcome back to the Fan Midday Show with Scott Agnes. I am Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison with us as well. well. Continue our Pacers and NBA at large conversation with our next guest. You know him. On his frequent stops on NBA TV as a contributor, as well as the voice of NBA.com's Top 10 and a major player, one of the department heads over there for the Sports Business Classroom and NBA Summer League. He is Bo Estes. Nice enough to make some time with us. How you doing today, my friend?
0: I'm doing well, man. Getting ready for Sports Business Classroom and Summer League, as you mentioned, uh, I I hear that Victor Wimbanyama is going to get a little bit of attention there, so we're trying to prepare ourselves, Jimmy, as you might imagine.
1: I understand it's a sellout already for sports business classroom,
0: (laughs) is that correct? Our friend Albert Hall has a smile from ear to ear right now.
1: (laughs) Bo, take us through first, before we go Pacers specific, I understand that you had a live stream of the NBA draft with Sports Business Classroom. Was was that the first year you guys have done that? And if so, what was that whole process like getting to have that exercise while also providing that content out there on draft night?
0: Well, as you might imagine, four hours live on a draft is a lot of work. I hosted um, Dan Purcell, who I know you're familiar with and your listeners are familiar with, uh, was a contributor on that. He's a former executive with the New Orleans Pelicans and Eric Pincus, who everybody knows, uh, he's a CBA expert and more, uh, works with Police Report, worked with us some at NBA TV. He was a part of it. But the real thrust of it, Jimmy, all our students that go through sports and business classroom, the ones that went into scouting, they became experts on particular prospects. They put together the film. And when that player was drafted, we allowed them to do the analysis and we teed them up. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, and it was a good way to showcase the skills that these students learned at Summer League and Sports Business Classroom.
2: joined by Bo Estes here on the Fan Midday Show. Bo, I'm curious in terms of the development uh, of those individuals, those students really trying to make it in the NBA. Have you seen maybe an emergence of one niche more than the other, whether it's analytics, whether it's, you know, GM's the obvious one, but um, have you – what – specific role has maybe taken a greater importance to your students
0: i think analytics does very well because there's a lot of call for that and it's a new call for that so we place a lot of students with nba teams and g-league teams and wnba teams in analytics roles but you know we we have a couple of g-league gms that sprang from our program so so there are those folks there's uh folks that go into teams as, as far as salary cap folks Uh, we've got those folks with, I I believe the Boston Celtics, Sacramento Kings and more. There's a lot of folks that go work for agents to be caps, uh, experts. So there's a lot of jobs on those two fronts. I run the media and broadcasting program. The last two years our producers for the, the student producers. One got a job on ESPN NBA and one got a job at a Las Vegas production company out there, uh, doing some betting content. So we've got students all over the place with a ton of success, we put a ton of work into it, and we're really proud of what they're doing.
1: But when you look back at the draft, we'll start big picture first outside of the Pacers. What stood out to you the most once the obvious selection of Victor Wembanyama was made, but also the Shams Tirania driven drama that was Brandon Miller and Scoot <laughs> Henderson at 2-3? Uh,
0: well, i tell you this. At the start of the night, Aaron Pincus said the team to watch is the Portland Trailblazers. He was most interested in who they would pick, what they would do if Brandon Miller went to Charlotte, as he did. Um, And, look, they went with Scoot Henderson. So I think that was the drama that we were following. And then the Thompson Twins going four and five was sort of a stunner. Uh, And then, you know, I, I think Dan Purcell kept noting how quickly and how far Cam Whitmore dropped uh, all the way down to 20. And, you know, those injury whispers uh, grow around a prospect and that momentum starts to uh, develop with, you know, his decline. Uh, But I think he landed in a pretty interesting spot uh, in in Houston along with uh, Amin Thompson uh, and that young team out there. It's a pretty perfect spot for him.
2: And, Bo, with that, you're, you're seeing a situation now with Whitmore and the Thompson Twit are going to be able – they were able to get Whitmore at 20, a guy that I think probably three weeks ago was penciled in right there at that top spot for them. So an incredible yeah. draft for them. Now it's about managing and developing that young talent because they have a lot of it, and there's only so many roles there.
0: Well, think about it. They've got, you know, Amin Thompson. They've got Cam Whitmore. They've got Jalen Green, who's a scoring machine, although, you know, inefficient, obviously. Uh, They got Jabari from last year. Uh, He's just so much talent on Houston. And I, you know, of all those people that I'm mentioning, I don't even know that I'm talking about the most talented player on that roster. Uh, So I I just think that, you know, when you look at Alpern Shingun and the way that he can set up those guys, that's a young team to watch. They're, they're not going to win a championship next year or anything like that. Uh, but it's a young team to watch for the future. Uh, and and like you mentioned, what do we do with all of this young talent? Who plugs in well where? Uh, is the questions that, that will keep the Houston Rockets organization up at night trying to figure out a good answer to that. Joe, Bo,
1: the Thompson Twins are very much a piece of proof of concept, if you will, of overtime elite and whether or not that that's a pathway that can work. Now, given the fact that they've only been you know in existence in that form for a year or two, it makes it, you know, they're licking their chops already knowing that they have all this exposure and they have had not just one, but two players go in the top five. Bo, when you take a temperature check of the entirety of pathways for kids out of high school to go to the draft, where does G League ignite if at all react to this? And is overtime elite... Now, an accepted pathway, or does it very much rely on what the Thompson twins are able to do at the next level?
0: Yeah, I think, I think it's an accepted pathway if it works. If you get drafted, it's an accepted pathway. Uh, I think that, you know, there are several different ways to go now. Uh, college used to be the primary and preferred way, but, you know, even look, I worked for the NBL over in Australia and the Next Stars program. Uh, has had players. Through, in fact, uh, the Indiana Pacers mm-hmm. drafted a next stars guy, Mojave King. So, mm-hmm. yeah, those guys that make it uh, from all over the world in different ways. And if you make it, I think it's accepted. You're you're right on. Like, let's see, uh, you know what their level is when they get to the NBA. How they have to adjust. All, all those preparation things are important. But I think right now. Uh, we're seeing an entirely new system and situation in place than what I grew up with and what I understood. And, you know, for the players, in a lot of cases, I think it's just better.
2: Bo, you you did mention Mojave King, and and this is a guy that went pro, I think, as like a 16-year-old, as as <laughs> foreigners often do. I mean, we saw that with yeah. Boyan McDonavis, Domanis Sabonis here locally uh, when they played here. Do you, any insight, anything you can share with our audience about what type of game he has and what he might look like down the road uh, when he puts it all together?
0: I think down the road is the key with him. You know, I, he had some moments with Cairns in the NBL where I thought, boy, he's got a lot of skill. Uh, but when you get to the NBA... A lot of skill goes some some distance, but the holes in your game get exposed. And I think he may have a few holes in his game that, that need to be tightened up. And he'll have time now in Indiana because he's not – you know, their top pick. He's not a first round pick. Uh, so he'll have space to grow. But I, I think, you know, I've seen his shot. His shot form looks okay. Uh, he has reasonable athleticism. So there, there's going to be some things that he has that are of value for the Indiana Pacers and they'll look into. But don't expect an immediate star.
1: Bo Estes with us covers the NBA as a correspondent for NBA TV and the voice of the NBA.com top 10. Bo, in a perfect world, not not speaking for the league, but speaking from your viewpoint, in a perfect world, is G League Ignite at the forefront of alternate college path for U.S. players? And if so, what is your feeling of, as you mentioned, seeing so many different pathways team or players can go, just focusing on, on stateside products with that question?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the key, is it's a stateside situation. Um, I think, you know... There is some advantages to that. And what I would say is that if you get into an NBA situation and, you know, G League Ignite is not the same as, as some of the other situations, but I think you have some safety, I guess, is a, is a way I, I'll, I'll put it is in that you have the people that are overseeing that organization have some responsibility to the G League. And they, I, I just think it's, it's safer in that way. Uh, But I don't know that there, again, I'm just not sold on anything being preferred at this point. Mm. I'm not sold on anything being done at this point. I feel like there's just so much more that needs to shake out before we get a preferred path.
2: Yeah, I would agree. I don't think there's any clarity in that, other than the fact that there are now options. And on top of that, yeah. if you go to college, there's the real nil opportunity. Yeah. Uh, depending on if the elite type of program and what type of player you are within that system, uh, you're you're seeing um, Oscar, Oscar Tashibwe, I think it is from from UK, could have been a second round pick last year. Went back, got a good nil deal. Alt- ultimately, came out of it this year and is now signing just a two-way deal with the Pacers upcoming. I also yeah. think back to like 15 years ago, a player like him or Zach Eady or Trace Jackson Davis. Those guys would have been top 10 picks yeah. in the way think players were valued back then.
0: Absolutely. As well as like Armando Baycott at North Carolina yeah. couldn't take the pay cut to go from Chapel Hill star <laughs> to, you know, like, oh, I hope I get a two-way deal. Exactly. I really hope I get... He can't take that pay cut. And you're right. The game is so much different. You have to be a versatile big now. You have to be able to shoot a little bit outside. You have to be able to cover a beat or two on a pick and roll. And some of these guys, you know, I mentioned Armando Baker. He struggles with that. So stick in college and keep that NIL money as long as you can. That's the good advice that you, many players in that regard receive that. You know, we've got... 25-year-old college players coming up this season. What's the, what's the kid's name from Alabama? Javon Quiverly, who's mm-hmm. transferred, I believe is his name. He's, tra- he's going to be 25 years old next season. Uh, that's incredible. You, you know, you think of the age that the Pacers' first pick is. He's 19 years old, and this guy's six years older than him. He's still going to be in college next year. It's incredible.
1: Bo, to build off of what Scott mentioned regarding the way the league has changed and valuing specific players focusing on big men the last 10 to 15 years, Zach Eadie makes that decision after testing the waters heavily out of Purdue to come back. Obviously, NIL was involved there, but he decided that his Beth path was still another year at Purdue. When you look at Trace Jackson Davis going late, very late in the draft, towards the back end of the second round, as Scott mentioned, Oscar Shibwe being an undrafted two-way player. Mm-hmm. But then I look at, there's guys like Cody Zeller that are still in the league, even though they're clinging, like they're still there is there a true pathway for the traditional big in this? new format of the nba or are they pretty much doomed to either overseas play or two-way deals that maybe find you on a roster spot every now and again in the league
0: yeah it's tough man it really is i mean if you, if you I, like when you say traditional big man i'm almost thinking like moses malone <laughs> right and going down you know like a guy down going to get every rebound in every bucket four feet from the hole if you pass it into him you're never getting it back out that's just the way it goes it's tough for a guy like that to make it now. It's just, you know, you're not as desired uh, as a guy who can float around and, and, you know, maybe operate off pick and roll uh, maybe make a pass after you receive it off a pick and pop, all those things that you need to do now. uh, I don't think of a traditional big man doing. So I think it's tougher for those guys to make it in the league. They get cooked on switches, uh, You know, I think there is a place maybe for them, but it's deep roster. It really is. I I don't know that that's a guy that's going to be a featured component. Uh, Even look at like, like, let's say the guy who has the most traditional big man skills is Joel Embiid. That's not all he has. Right. He has so much more than just that. So I just think you have to bring more to the table now. And that's the way that the league is refereed, that's the way that the league is played. I just think that, uh, you know, it incentivizes guys who can do a little bit of everything.
2: Joined now by Bo Estes of NBA and NBA.com. And Bo, I, w- I want to get down a wormhole a little bit that I'm sure you never answered any questions about whatsoever. And that's kind of being the, the top 10 guy. First of all, what is it like having that honor? And can you take us behind the scenes of your process? Say this was a Monday night slate of games. You have 12 games. What is it like in the evening where you got to hammer out all these probably two minute quick updates and summaries. And nowadays, I talk to kids, you know, 15 and younger, and this is how they consume the league more than anything. Yeah. It's these uh, top 10 clips, it's highlights of every games. It, it, so you're really making an impact and heard uh, by a big audience.
0: Well, it's wild. I was just doing a conference with students from around the world. And, you know, my name came up, and I think maybe some people recognize, but as soon as I started talking, Mm -hmm. you start to see people's eyes like, oh, okay, I know who this is. Uh, it's it's amazing to me because again, I came up in the eighties and nineties to think that this is a league that is now seen and heard around the world and the impact we're having is such a, a, a real treat for me personally. Um, my process on a given night, if it's a 12 game night, boy that's even tougher because we have <laughs> to have eyes on each and every game. So we're all looking at every single game and trying to find what are the best two or three plays from each game. I on Twitter will send out an alert. Send me your nominees for the top ten plays, and then so as it develops, guys. What happens is, let's say third quarter of the West Coast games, I start to have an idea of what some of the plays are going to be, and so in my mind, I can start thinking about what I want to say for each one. And if somebody hit a fifty-foot buzzer beater to win the game, I know that's number one, right? There's just no doubt about it. And from there, um, you know, look, I'll get the, I'll get the top ten really quick after the last game ends. And my job is to turn that around in 10 minutes. So I don't have time to write anything down. I don't have time to really sketch out anything. It's a two and a half minute clip. I will look at it once i will think in my whatever pops into my head to say i tend to say even if it you know if even if it risks my job i probably will say it uh and then you know i just roll with it i, I turn it right around and do you know send it out and my advantage is i've probably called more highlights uh nba highlights than anybody alive so i can just do it now it's like it's like a, it's like a, it's like a gear in your car i just put it in that gear and my brain starts going Um, But, yeah, it's a real joy. I'm lucky to have the job, and the impact that Top Ten has made has been wonderful for my career and my life, and I just appreciate everybody that listens to it. I I really – it means the world to me.
2: The one challenge I I foresee, though, is – Those teams out west; those are the teams that oftentimes produce the best and most frequent highlights. Right, Golden State. You got to include the Lakers, Sacramento now. (laughs) So you got to really be waiting until the very end. Well, he's fixed that now.
0: You guys think about it. You you guys will understand this. Thinking you're you're a young producer and you've got your top ten lined up. And then Steph hits a 40 foot buzzer beater, and you're just thrown (laughs) into re edit mode like crazy.
2: Exactly.
0: You know, at at that moment. So they have to redo every single thing about what they've worked on. Um, And you're right. You have to watch till the bitter end because many, many times the number one play of the night has been the last play on the last West Coast game. So you just have to be open to that happening and be ready to change on the fly. And you know that delays our process a little bit uh obviously but it is what it is we make it work uh and you know we want to produce the best possible product that that's issue number one for us and if we can tackle that we've done our job
1: i don't want to take too much weight off your crossbow but to be clear i feel like if i'm not mistaken you're out west now so for you it's it's an eight o'clock finish instead of an 11 o'clock when you were out in atlanta right
0: I feel like I screwed up so bad by operating at Turner Sports for 25 years in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> out West, it is so much easier to cover the NBA. It's so much easier. You're getting done earlier. And guys, I, I lived in Maui for a month and changed one time to cover the NBA from out there. It's even easier the further <laughs> West you go. I mean, there's really an idea where we all should be living out in Maui and doing this NBA gig. I, I'll be honest with you. It's fantastic.
1: As we've seen the Summer League year over year now, Bo, I feel like rightfully so. Injury concerns, watching out for the franchise yep. stars, you only see so often the top players really get consecutive game action. I know Victor Wembanyama said that he was going to participate in Summer League. He skips FIBAs now, which I don't blame him to focus yep. on his rookie season. How much, if at all, do you think we see some of the top players like Wembanyama, like Scoot Henderson, like Brandon Miller out there in Las Vegas in a couple of weeks?
0: Well, I think each team has a different approach. I, I remember seeing a little clip from Wendem Yama a week ago that was just sort of caught in a casual moment where somebody asked him if he's going to play in Summer League, and his exact quote was, a little bit. Uh, I hope he plays a little bit in each game. I really do. If he can give us you know 15 minutes in each game, that would be fantastic. But I understand the San Antonio Spurs position here. You know, you're coming off a year where you saw – Chet Holmgren lose an entire season in a in a game that didn't matter. Uh, so I th- I think you know San Antonio will be very conservative, but I do think we'll see him. You, you remember a couple of years ago, Jimmy Zion Williamson yep. goes out and gets injured at halftime of this first game, and that's it. That that was, was an, an earthquake? Show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that night, and we don't know if caused it. Maybe uh, but yeah. So it, that's the way it goes. um I hope we see I hope we see Victor Wimbanyama. I would imagine we'd see more of a guy like Scoot, who's built like an NFL running back, who looks like he can take all the contact in the world. I wouldn't be surprised to see a bit more of him, and I bet he'll be really exciting. Uh, Brandon Miller, we'll see. Uh, but, you know, I, I look forward to seeing all these guys and some of the stories of folks that are, you know, Overseas and trying to make it back to the NBA—that's that's a lot of fun too.
2: Well, I think I'd be surprised if Victor plays more than two games. I think you'll for for sure see him one because the NBA did it brilliantly on that first night. Right, we get the yep. a beautiful pairing of Victor versus Scoot in night 1 and then uh, I think it's the Thompson Twins after that play, squaring off and those will be nationally on ESPN so yep. you showcase that you got a big momentum going into the weekend but even even the other first round picks like the Pacers Jaris Walker guys like that usually play no more than 3 of the 5 games
0: yeah, no, you shut him down. You really do. You, I think they want to see what we've got in this guy. I think we want to see how does he take coaching, how does he play in a team environment at this level. Because, like I just mentioned a minute ago, there's going to be some men from overseas that are going to be there. So you're going to take contact like you haven't taken contact before. But uh, I don't think you want to exert them too much. And you, you remember last year, Paulo Bancaro right away, great, knocking it out of the park, and Jabari Smith. Uh-oh, what's going on here? Like, he wasn't as good. And so I think there's a little bit of that, too. Like, how is this he responding mentally, and we don't want to get him into a bad place. So there's all of that that goes into these decisions. But I think item number one, particularly with Victor Wimbanyama, and so much, not just in San Antonio, but in the league riding on him, let's be careful with him. Let's make sure he's healthy. Let's get him to training camp well, and we'll roll from there.
1: Bo, I know that you're focused all around the league and obviously you're prep for a sports business classroom and the entirety of what Summer League brings to the table. But when we look locally at the Pacers and we have these conversations nationally on them, there appears to be a lot of optimism for the roster they are constructing. But again, they're on the path to perhaps a playoff spot next year, getting into that play-in next year, hopefully out of this rebuild process. As you look at the pieces they have here in Indiana, when you look at Tyrese Halliburton, when you looked at Benedict Matherin, Jairus Walker coming in now, Miles Turner, what do you envision for this team next season, and how does adding somebody of Jairus Walker, you talk about freak specimen, how does it help yeah. them bringing him in, pairing him up in the front court with Miles Turner?
0: Well, I'll, I'll... Start here. Like I feel like I said this every time. I'm on with you, Jimmy. Expectations for Pacers fan is key. Uh, I don't think they're winning the championship next year. I really don't. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> come on now. Yeah, I, mean, I, I feel like I'm breaking some news here. I don't think they're going to win the championship. Uh, but yeah, so like and Tyrese Halliburton is a star, borderline superstar, and if he's healthy, he's sort of got some All NBA possibilities with him. So you start there and that's a really good start because he he is the head of the snake down there or up there in Indiana. So I I think that's a great start. You know, when you, when you talk about Jairus Walker, I've seen some comparisons that I really like. I saw Aaron Gordon a little bit, and I saw Larry Johnson. And I see a bit of both in his game. He's really strong. He's really physical. And, again, just 19 years old and able to handle a little bit, the one dribble, the two dribbles, in half court, I think really helps. um, He takes contact incredibly well. I don't think he's a great shooter, and I don't know that he's ever going to be a great shooter. You look at his free throw percentage uh, from college sixty six percent. That you know, I, I talked to Seth Partnow. He does analytics at uh, Sports Business Classroom. And when you're below seventy percent on free throw shooting, it's hard to you know. Th- there's not many cases where a guy scales up to be a great three point shooter. If he's a decent enough three point shooter, that's good enough. But you know, the pieces that uh, Indiana has in place. Again, I could see a six seed in an optimistic setting. I could see maybe even a five seed. But, you know, look, in the Eastern Conference, one Milwaukee, two Boston, three Philly. That's pretty, pretty solid to me. Uh, I think Cleveland's really good. Uh, So I just think that there are some spots that are that are tough to beat out. Uh, But in that next group, I could see Indiana ascending into that sort of area pretty easily.
1: Bo, last question before I let you go. Free agency is on the horizon. When you look at this class, but also for the first time in his career, the rumblings are louder than ever about Damian Lillard and whether or not he'll actually be on the move. What are you focused on and what are you tracking the most in your eyes with free agency on the horizon?
0: I mean, I think you're right. I think uh, Damian Lillard is interesting because they drafted – a player that is very similar to him in scoot Henderson, at least from a size profile and from a, you know, he was a scorer first profile. So, you know, it gives them flexibility and they can try Damian Lillard and, and scoot together, or they have options to go off of him. So that's, that's the number one thing. Um, there are other guys that are interesting to me. Uh, what's going to happen with Draymond Green? I don't think it's set in stone that he's coming back to Golden State. I really do not. So I think you know who values him and what he brings to the table is an interesting question as well. Uh, this is not a super, super, superstar class. It's really not. So, uh, And with the new CBA that, frankly, guys, isn't even done yet, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how these teams attack the new salary cap and how they uh, put pieces together if they want to wait to see how things shake out. Um, I'm fascinated by it, but again, to me, it's not an overwhelmingly huge year, uh, in the free agency market.
1: Bo, keep enjoying it out West. Have a great time at Summer League. Best of luck with the sellout over there for the sports business classroom and hope to be crossing our paths here soon, my friend.
0: All right, if you guys get to Vegas, come
1: see me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's Bo Estes. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at com's top 10 and a frequent contributor with NBA TV.
2: I, I love the secret you kind of made no longer a secret. Yeah, if you live on the West Coast, not too oh, it's, difficult. It's beautiful. He was very yeah. happy when he made that move because it's just it, – and
1: I, we talk about it all the time in different sporting sections, the furthest time zone I've lived in for more than a couple of months has been Chicago. And even that hour off with NFL games or NBA games is just fantastic. It helps everything from a sleep schedule standpoint. But then you go out west and it's a whole different animal. You have the whole rest of your day, basically, even
2: after an NFL Sunday. See, I think mountain time's the best. It's the perfect middle thing. Sure. Because and I experienced this during summer league or when traveling out west and Pacers are in you know, California, LA, right? The trouble is If I'm waking up at 9 a.m., there's a whole news cycle that already happened out on the East Coast from 8 a.m. to noon. Fair. So I feel like I'm spending the first 45 minutes catching up. However, on the plus side, I will say, is like after 10 p.m. out on the West Coast, Twitter's dead. No one's on it. It's one. Yeah. That's one a.m. on the East Coast. So I'll find myself checking Twitter like after thirty minutes, and there's like five tweets. Yeah, yep. that's it. Because most people are in bed by that time. That's why I think that Mountain Time. That's why Denver. Oh, it's oh mm-hmm. so sweet because you kind of get the best best of both worlds. You 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 know, games are in ending at a like eleven p.m. and you're up at a reasonable hour and not always playing catch up.
1: Well, if you're a Pacers fan out West, that's why you're subscribed to Fieldhouse Files. There you so you go. get that newsletter and you get your rundown <laughs> so you didn't miss anything in the in the East Coast time zone.
2: There you go. Please Appreciate the plug.
1: Happy to do what I can. Of course, you can find Scott's work as well on 107.5thefan.com. Like Bo mentioned, not the most star-studded list for free agents, not the deepest class that it's been, but there are a couple names out there. We'll look at potential fits for the Pacers and how much money they might be willing to spend. We come back here on the fan midday show, plus a real deep dive into the cap space. The Pacers have how much perceived value is there really compared to the rest of the NBA, Keith Smith, We'll stop by a little bit at the top of the two o'clock hour, take us through that entire process and talk about what Bo mentioned. And Scott's hammered at home as well. The CBA still very much waiting for its true finalization, how it's going to impact teams moving forward. More on NBA free agency and how it impacts the Pacers though. On the other side.
4: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
6: Indiana's an interesting one there. Uh, despite the fact that Mavericks basically Sally dumped Harrison Barnes, I can tell you that Rick Carlisle loves Harrison Barnes. Matter of fact, I'll, I'll sit here and tell you because Bob Volgares told me this uh, on the record. One reason that Bob Volgares, um, who you know was the Mavericks' director of quantitative analysis, but basically Cubans, the the person of voice that Cuban was listened to the most. Uh, one reason Bob Volgares was lobbying to to move Barnes. Is because Rick wouldn't stop calling plays for him, even when he had Luca. <laughs> so, so like, no, no, no. You know, everything's got to revolve around Luca, but Rick loves him to the point where, you know, he they just didn't think that that Barnes could transition into being a role player under Rick. Now, Barnes has already transitioned into that. Obviously, he was in Sacramento, what, their their third or fourth offensive option, but I, I think he could fit pretty well with uh with that group that they have in indiana if if uh if the pacers decide that, that he's a guy that they want to make a pretty uh significant offer to
2: that was tim mcmahon joining brian winhorse in the who collective podcast a really good one if you haven't checked that out but tim mcmahon knows rick carlisle and the mavericks very well he's on that beat down in dallas covered him for 13 years it was Tim McMahon who broke the news that Rick Carlisle was becoming the Pacers head coach. But at the same time, also not too surprising because of the familiarity with Harrison Barnes and Rick Carlisle. That's one big thing that I took note. I mentioned Harrison in my story last week. I think Harrison was a the guy there, is the guy thereafter, Jimmy. On top of that, a couple of the players they checked in on last week was in Brooklyn. They were really trying to swing a deal. Oh, another former Maverick. Dorian Finney-Smith. Oh, that's convenient. The other guy was Tobias Harris in Philly. They checked in on DeAndre Hunter down in Atlanta. I don't know this personally, but a rumored player also was Jonathan Kaminga with Golden State. I don't see that fit as much. I think that's more of a reach because we don't know what he is. And to me, you're really trying to fill one of those last roster spots here. With a small four that you know exactly what he is. He's defensive-minded, and you know what you're going to bring. But your thoughts about what Ted McMahon had to share about Harrison Barnes, who's 31, is an unrestricted free agent coming from Sacramento, who, by the way, spent time with Tyrese Halliburton and Buddy Heald out there. So there's more than just the Carlisle connection.
1: We were just discussing and having a hard time solidifying what a second unit is going to look like for this Pacers team. Yep. There, There is a position of need in a handful of different spots, but if you could get somebody that you're able to flex around a bit at the three and the four, obviously primarily the three with Barnes at this point in time in his career, but I don't hate it. I mean, I want a splash of some kind. It doesn't have to be a starting level splash, but just a, you know, we like where the roster's at, but we want to further speed this process along and feel like we can legitimately be in that both said as high as five. I've said as high as maybe four for really being super idealistic or optimistic about what the Pacers could do next season. Barnes, to his credit, through now this will be his 12th NBA season, has only been under 35% from three one time, and that was in his third season in the league. So... Look, I I like it. I do. But it's one of those things now, though, where, and this is just the way my brain works sometimes, now that you hear everybody talking about it as, oh, this is the perfect fit, this is the perfect (laughs) fit. Is it really actually something the Pacers are truly interested in?
2: Absolutely. I think so. Yeah. It's something to pay attention to. Absolutely. I was surprised, as I mentioned in the first hour of the show here on the Fan Midday, that I was surprised they weren't quite able to swing something before the draft. I don't know what it would have cost them, but I thought the Dorian yeah. Finney-Smith thing was something they were really trying to swing. That ultimately did not happen, so it opens them up here. And right now, you sign Jarius Walker. Yes, You also will sign Ben Shepard. Then you just have one true roster spot available if you don't send out anybody. And so that's another reason, too, why I think it's more likely than not that they make a deal coming up.
3: If they did make a deal with Harrison Barnes, who does that push out?
2: You got it. That would, to me, you'd need you need to just clear out a center and a, a shooting guard, meaning that Daniel Tice, Jalen Smith, Isaiah Jackson, mm-hmm. and then one of Buddy Healed, probably Chris Duarte. But Buddy Heal's on the last end of a contract. I don't. You should not expect the Pacers to do an extension with him this summer. I I think. They need to see what he looks like, especially if he comes off the bench and tweaks his role a little bit. Is he comfortable with that? How does he play in that role? Um, it's just—it's unfortunate. Chris had just a bad break of luck all last season. Kyle Lowry stepped on his foot, and then he came back and had a, a, a tweak that ankle once more. I only felt like he played 20 30 games. I think he ultimately played like 55. It didn't feel that way and I think in large part Jimmy that was because he was kind of the, out of out of the re- rotation really trying to find his feel with this team and this new crop of players that were involved in the mix.
1: If I'm bringing in Barnes, I, I completely agree with you of, of what should be moving. It would be likely Duarte and likely... Uh, Daniel Tice? Yeah, something like that, perhaps, that would go to a team where, for Duarte, and you could throw Tice in the mix for this as well, when Duarte was first going through the pre-draft process a couple of years ago, and people were trying to map out where he could end up, a lot of people pointed to a handful of different contenders towards the middle of the back end of the draft if he fell there because of the fact that he was, a, a, in theory, a ready-made pro prospect because he'd been in college for so long and his skill set as a shooter that he would gel right in there. So I'm looking at, again, you'd be signing Barnes and free agency and then perhaps you're looking at shipping off Tyson Duarte to a team that either is trying to add depth or would try to add a piece that could potentially work into their contributors off the bench in a playoff run.
2: The two teams I know for a fact really wanted him on draft night a couple of years ago. Was the team right behind the Pacers, Golden State, who mm-hmm. ended up with, what, Moses Moody, Moody Moses, Moses... There you go. <laughs> That's yeah. classic, yeah. Kendrick Perkins. Yeah. Perk. yep. Yes. Was <laughs> Golden State... They badly wanted him, and so did the New York Knicks. They were trying to trade two first-round picks to move up to that 13th spot and get and get Chris Duarte. Um I know the Knicks had a couple of scouts. So did the Warriors. I think midway through the year at GameBridge Fieldhouse to try to see what Duarte looked like, to try to see what the how he was gelling, how. Things were going, quite frankly, with his role with the team. Nothing really materialized. I think his trade value decreased just because of his lack of production and lack of a, a role. After really Matherin came in and Buddy took his game to another level, and then of course Tyrese his usage rate going up and his efficiency going up as well, and so that's I don't I don't see Chris Duarte as an odd man out, but I would see him as a guy other teams would like, and he's a little bit expendable because of what they have just done, and most recently that's adding a similar type three and D player and Ben Shepherd in the draft,
1: in previous days of free agency in years past when you're looking at like a Monday before free agency starts and you're examining everything, we always come back to the conversation of, well, you have big time free agents or at least big name, high dollar value free agents that might dictate or handicap how aggressive some teams can be because they're so honed in or zeroed in our particular player. You think of guys like Russell Westbrook or what James Harden's going to do or Kyrie Irving. Again, there's different values for each of those players. I'm just using them because they're at the top of the list of unrestricted free agents at this point in time. The Pacers if you're looking for it as a benefit or glass half full angle don't have to worry about that necessarily because they're not trying to retain one of their own at such a high evaluation or are having to wait and see how everything else plays out but with those other names that are going to be towards bigger teams how if at all does that impact not just the pacers but the entirety of this free agency this year compared to years past in your mind with what this class is yeah in terms of the draft class? The, 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 free, the free agent, agent class, class yeah. because we often see teams just waiting. Waiting,
2: right. There's not someone of LeBron's right. staff, KD's caliber. It's James Harden, really. is that top tier, sure. I think. And, and Kyrie's probably in that... Not, not. You know uh, what I mean. Like, kind of.
1: To the point that a contender, in theory, would still be trying to allocate assets and measure him as a potential piece.
2: The reality is the teams that would be interested, like the Lakers... I don't think they have the right, money to correct. sign him straight up. Yeah, it'd have to be They could, trade. but it'd be like a league minimum. Yes. Or $5 million. Something's not going to happen, yeah. Yeah, Like unless Kyrie is good with taking a pay cut, which it doesn't seem to be all the case, because why did he want out of Brooklyn ultimately? Well, no one knows exactly for sure. No with one Kyrie. knows many of the spots right. he wanted out the, of. The, what the big picture seemed like was because no team, in particular Brooklyn, was willing to commit, rightfully so, like more than a year or two. Like I think it would be wrong for any team to let's say offer Kyrie a four year max deal I don't think I would offer him a two year max deal without a team option and you're not getting that so it seems like for Kyrie that's why I kind of still pencil him in with Dallas just because they kind of need each other even if it's not a great fit Um, but I think it's James Harden uh, Draymond Green would be the next one because if you're a team like Sacramento and right now they would have enough cap space to sign him for say 30 million what player now wouldn't want to necessarily jump in and go to Sacramento. Mike Brown, great coach, good with relationships, and they have a team that's not just now built for the playoffs, but maybe a player could see themselves as the missing link, the missing player that could help put that team over the top. But in terms of what you're looking at for the Pacers and and free agent forwards, I'm not talking about trades, but free agents, I'm not sure about Kyle Kuzma. I, I think P.J. Washington would be an interesting candidate with Charlotte. Um he's a guy that's done well, been productive, earned his earned that salary that he earned with Charlotte, but sh- the Hornets aren't going anywhere. Yeah. I think that's a team that's boy, I would remake it entirely. Um I know probably Charlotte doesn't feel this way, but I'd get rid of LaMelo, try to maximize what you can there, but if you get rid of him you kind of lose a lot of your relevancy. But uh, Miles Bridges is a player the Pacers were seriously considering last off season, but then um, the alleged, mm-hmm. what is it, sexuals? Domestic violence, uh, I think it was domestic battery, happened with him like a day before the start of free agency, which, by the way, comes up on Friday. So it is yeah. at the end of this week. We are getting closer. We put the draft in the rearview mirror, and, and now you're looking forward to free agency. I think P.J. Washington and Harrison Barnes would probably be the first two that I think of. Grant Williams comes to mind as well, but I don't like that fit as much. I'm I've never been a big Grant Williams guy, so do I want to commit twenty million per year to him? No, not really. And the other thing that you could consider, Jimmy, and I think we talked about this briefly last hour. I wonder if the Pacers do a JJ Redick deal, and what I mean by that is you sign one of these veterans to a substantial deal that's like two years, you know, or even one year deal with a team option. In year two, something like $25 million for Harrison Barnes. Probably above what he's looking for or will be able to get. I don't know. We'll see. A 31-year-old small forward. Overpay for a knee but not of the long-term. Variety. And do it in yes. the short term because you can. Because right now your books allow that to happen. You can see right away the impact he'll be able the familiarity with Rick Carlisle, plus the comfort with Tyrese Halliburton and Buddy Heald. I talked to Buddy Heald about his routine. In terms of, you know, gamely and, and his wind down and icing and hot hot tub, all that. Where did he get that? Harrison Barnes. He was kind of his vet. And so if, if Buddy is taking a liking to that, a guy that's all in on basketball, surely you could love the trickle-down effect that that could happen.
1: Of all the names you mentioned, and I know me and Eddie disagree on this slightly, I wouldn't necessarily be mad about it, but I saw enough, particularly his final two years in LA of Kyle Kuzma being called upon as a starting yep. small forward in this league where that, and that's a championship caliber team at that point in LA I know it's different here with where the expectations are right now but it would have to be a, a perfect deal in terms of both money and years that I'd be willing to allocate when even though he's looked good at Washington at times he's the best player on a Wizards team that again hasn't amounted to much the last two or three years I think if the role was right, maybe that's an area you fall back on. But at this point, I'm more with you on if they could only have one of the two, I would almost rather acquire Barnes at this point for a two-year window or so than I would Kyle Kuzma for four.
2: Yeah, if it's Kyle Kuzma, it's going to be something, three- or four-year deal you would surely expect. By the way, this just in from Woj here. John Collins is finally being moved. That, I think John Collins, other than Miles Turner, has been the most rumored, speculated player You know, in the last four years, it feels like, Jimmy. And so yeah. uh, Woj says the Hawks are sending John Collins to the Jazz for Rudy Gay and a future second-round pick. So um, I guess he notes here they're moving... Mostly what they're doing is moving off of Yeah, Collins' three years, $78 million deal, and it's widely expected and known that Atlanta has to get under the luxury tax. That's the orders of Atlanta ownership. And so that's what this is accomplishing more than anything here.
1: Atlanta is so interesting to me and intriguing because it feels like even though he's a defensive liability at times, it feels like that they have at least in their mind, a superstar piece in Trey Young. But because of the contract extension to Collins and where they're at, they are struggling to figure out how they're going to build around him. But we're still able to, again, be a... They're a spot that you just don't want your team to be in, right? They have a, a great player in Young, but their ceiling or they've been knocking on the door the last couple of years outside of that playoff win in New York a couple of years ago is bottom of the Eastern Conference standings, being a part of that seven to eight range of the play-in, and that's after a handful of years spent in the lottery. I mean, that's just not... When you look at this Pacers rebuild and you look around the Eastern Conference, of I don't want to end up like that team, and I don't think they will because they're constructed differently. It's Atlanta right now when I look at the Eastern Conference and where things are, are structured as it stands.
2: It, uh, yeah. I, I'm very fascinated, by, by the way, the new the collective bargaining agreement and what that looks mm-hmm. like. Um, because right now, teams don't just have it quite yet they have kind of an outline i think it's 100 pages or so uh, of what it's supposed to look like and the way in which teams can utilize things and uh, one of the big draws we saw last week was the second pick exception and that's in large part what allowed for the golden state warriors to draft trace jackson davis and give him a three-year contract um, for a team that is significantly over the luxury tax, because um, coming up with this new, without the second pick exception, these teams wouldn't have the money to be able to even pay for a second-round pick, and that doesn't help anyone out. The, who that costs is those prospective players that are just trying to find their in with a franchise.
1: So coming here on the Fan Midday Show, we're going to look at the cap space available for the Pacers and how, in general, the CBA is going to change, not so much the Pacers, but the way that teams of the higher tax bill are able to navigate through things in free agency. We'll take a big picture look at that with Keith Smith coming up at the top of the two o'clock hour. We come back a little bit more with the Pacers as we transition to that more national picture for where things go with free agency. Like Scott mentioned, at least in terms of initial no- negotiations, the oh, there's no tampering going on period. That is the start or unofficial start of NBA free agency here in a couple days on the Fan Midday Show.
4: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclib 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
1: Back here in the DriveHuber.com studios for the Fan Midday Show. Jimmy Cook, Scott Agnes, Eddie Garrison coming to you from The Circle it's around that time where the Colts are far enough away from training camp where it's still this this resting period, but not far enough away to not still have those conversations on where the roster construction is heading into the 2023 campaign. It's always a great read on ESPN.com if Bill Barnwell goes through and ranks the skill position players on each roster where they were a year ago to where they are now. The Colts dropped five spots in his ranking to 25th. I mean, we've talked about it a lot, Scott. Some of that is weighted because Michael Pittman Jr., many thought, would have yet another jump-off point next, or this past season for his career after a solid sophomore campaign. His third year in the league does not deliver the way he wanted it to. Jonathan Taylor struggles with injuries. The offensive line was in tatters, and that's not even taking into account the coaching carousel, the coaching chaos and the quarterback carousel that we envisioned as you look now with that draft many, many weeks behind us Ray. now. But again, in this interim period, is there a good enough core, a good enough skill position balance, regardless if it's Anthony Richardson or Gardner Minshew under center week one? No, I think the
2: Colts need more weapons. That's what I've I've seen that need Mm -hmm. for many years here. And the other thing we were talking about, how do you judge overtime elite players for the NBA draft? How do you judge any Colts players for their season last year? (laughs) I think the one we can all agree on that was totally unacceptable and everyone needs work is that offensive line. And they acknowledge that as well. But I'm in particular more thinking about the weapons here. If the offensive line is struggling, how do you judge a running back? How do you judge the time that is not there for a quarterback to have some time to throw to their weapons down down the field? And right. that brings in uh, Pittman Jr. Right here is, I think we, because here's where I sit it's like I think they were all underwhelming, but how could they not be underwhelming? Yeah. You had a coach fired, replaced on an interim basis. You gave up the what the biggest comeback in league history. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to even start outside of that offensive line who all acknowledged we were not good enough.
1: Yeah, the only place you can really have a fair, and it's not fully fair, but a fair evaluation from a positional standpoint is on the defensive side of the ball. And even then, you also take into account the fact, well, they're having to work additional reps and extra hard because of the lack of offensive extended drives. They were living on the field. Correct. So, so in particularly at the back end of the season, again, I know that's going to be a mark. that's in the highlight reel forever, but it's hard to fully get an evaluation of that Minnesota game. When again, you're asking a defense to be on the field as often as they were. I don't put as much stock in, for instance, there's only one reason that Jonathan Taylor's injuries, as we'll continue to have discussion on his contract mm-hmm. coming to play, which is if you're the Colts and you don't like the evaluation that you're getting, Maybe you're looking at his injured season last year and pointing to that and saying, hey, you just had some durability issues last season. We don't want to give you a long-term deal. Outside of that, it's hard to make an
2: evaluation on anybody. Yeah, and with JT, too, it felt towards the end, it was like, yeah, we don't really need you (laughs) here. uh, It's kind of like the pace of his last 12 games. You know what? We're thinking big picture here. Um, Tyrese, yeah, we we're gonna shut you down. Which I should, I said they should have done a week earlier. But uh, yeah, in terms of JT and, and Michael Pittman Jr. and you even t- I, you mentioned the weapons. I'll even go to the other side of the ball. The secondary right now needs some upgrades, especially with what Isaiah Rodgers allegedly did here. In- Right, betting and, and how that's going to impact him probably for most of next year but we do not have a final determination just yet. This is the Fan Midday Show coming up at 2 o'clock Keith Smith for Spotrack covers the NBA more so from a analytics and CBA and salary cap perspective we'll get into the NBA and particularly the Pacers and what free agency could look like for them coming up this week and stay tuned. Welcome back into the Fan Midday Show with Jimmy Cook and Eddie Garrison. I'm Scott Agnes. 201 here on The Circle. Let's continue our NBA conversation, bring in friend of the show, Keith Smith, longtime NBA writer and reporter currently can read his work on Spo track and, and more than anything spot track i always mess that up keith but we got the new collective bargaining agreement coming up on july 1 a lot of teams or a handful of teams including the pacers have cap space what are some of the key storylines you are tracking heading into this weekend keith
7: yeah, it's going to be a big uh, summer for the NBA. I was told a few weeks ago by a, a handful of different people, it felt like one of those years where we're going to see one of those kind of resets of the league happens about every four or five years or so where there's a bunch of trades and sometimes a lot of free agent movement. And I think we're already seeing that. We've already seen uh, major trades, including one that's, you know, just uh, news broke in the last 10, 15 minutes or so, John Collins headed to the Utah Jazz. So, you know, we're, we're in a spot where I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Probably big trades, free agent market, not so great. Not, not a ton of, you know, star guys there. The ones that are out there are expected to stay. But, you know, if you've got cap space, you can facilitate trades easier. Uh, you can go fill needs you have. So I think it's going to be a really busy, active summer.
1: With that reset thought in mind, Keith, how... In what different ways, I guess, will the new CBA impact that aspect of creativity, particularly those of teams that are past their championship window but have a ton of cap on the books and are trying to facilitate said reset deals?
7: Yeah, you're going to see the most expensive teams in the league start to go one way or another. Uh, this summer, either they're going to start shedding salary, which is something we saw the Golden State Warriors do with Jordan Poole. Uh, is they're going to swap him for Chris Paul uh, from the Wizards? Uh, because while they're taking on a little bit of money right now in Chris Paul's contract. They're saving a ton of money long term, and, and most of the more uh, rigorous penalties will kick in next year, about a year from now, on the, these teams that are uh, really expensive and above what they're calling the, the second tax apron. I like to call it the super tax, <laughs> it's a little more descriptive. So they, they're um, you know, so you're going to see that happen. But then you're going to see other teams like the Phoenix Suns, who said, "Okay, cool. I know this grace period year is designed around." getting rid of some salary, moving some salary along, uh, but this is our last chance to take on a ton of salary. So let's load up and do that right now, which is what they did in acquiring Bradley Beal. So we're going to be seeing some teams make, make some moves here uh, over the next uh, week or so uh, at the start of free agency that are designed long term because the NBA is trying to push those really expensive teams to come back to the pack a little bit with their spending while forcing all of the other teams to come up a little bit with how much they spend and try to gain in, in, I guess the best way to say it is introduce some parity into the league through roster building and financial consideration.
2: And key to that last point, that was one thing I highlighted earlier in the show for the Pacers in particular, and the Spurs and other teams are having the same thought Is now before the season. there There's the luxury, or the, the tax floor that they, a salary floor that they must hit, whereas normally you can wait till about this time next year to get until that level and meet those spending requirements. So the so That's a whole new thing that's impacting the other teams. You talked about the teams at the top. This is impacting those teams in terms of the salary at the bottom.
7: Yeah, absolutely. So we saw the the team right there for you guys, the Indiana Pacers, a year ago sit on a ton of cap space uh, into the season, and they used that very wisely to renegotiate and extend Miles Miles Turner's contract. And that was really a great move by them, great move for Turner, uh, get get some long-term stability in there with that situation. And it was almost at a I don't want to say no cost because I'm not the one writing the check. <laughs> right. No cost in terms of, of roster building, right? You basically had this extra cap space, so why not use it now because that was use it or lose it at space. In the future, what's going to happen is teams that are that far under the cap, they're going to, be, they're going to have what's basically like a false cap hold put on their books that's going to be sitting there to bring them up. So you're not going to be able to just sit on you million, know, $40 million of cap space uh, because what the league wants them to do is hey spend that on guys spend that on players you know spend it on you know you don't have to necessarily go be a, in the play you know for a max guy but go spend it on three four different guys at you know 10 12 million apiece and and bring those guys in and you know strengthen your roster so so that's what they're trying to do is you know incentivize those teams to spend more money that are the lower salary teams otherwise you're gonna be sitting there the other thing they introduce too for those teams is if you're sitting there way under and then when the luxury tax bills Come do which everybody shares in that. Were non non-tax-paying teams, you won't get your share of those tax bills if you don't uh, meet your minimum salary obligation. So that's going to be a new dynamic as well that comes into play here over the next couple of years.
2: That's big money too. I think Woj reported that it was like forty-four million, the most of any team for the Pacers this past season. So you you got to believe they like those and will want those checks. So you got to follow those those qualifications uh, to to reach that threshold. And, and Keith, I'm curious. What do you foresee will be the trickle-down effect because of that? Because previously what you would do is see teams, because of that flexibility, they could get to the trade deadline. Maybe they wait and take on a bad contract. Or maybe at the end of a year, a team just has injuries and they need to blow up a team so then they can offload assets. Now you maybe won't have that quite f- that much flexibility because you've already had to tie down some of your cap space to reach those thresholds that you just addressed.
7: Yeah, I think you're on it with that. I think what we're going to see is teams almost have to pick a direction now in the summertime versus kind of taking the approach of, well, let's let the first couple months play out and see what it looks like headed in, into to the season. Now what they're going to do is say, all right, well, we can't just sit on all this you know extra you know space and then we'll eat contracts in the course of a year from a team whose maybe season isn't going quite the way they thought it would. You, you almost have to do that now. And and I think you know, that's one of the unintended consequences of this maybe. I think there's also a couple of other unintended consequences is you're going to see some guys who might be more middling free agents where it's like, oh, okay, that's a nice player, eight million million a year who may get, you know, 12, 15 million, because teams are like, well, we have to spend anyway. We kind of like their fit. Let's just pay them a little bit more and go on the other end for the really expensive teams like Phoenix, for example, because they're going to be limited to basically resigning their own guys. I think you're going to see the Suns kind of, Give contracts out to guys like Tory Craig, Jock Landale, kind of those mid-level free agents that should be, you know, in the range of you know minimum deal to seven million dollar deal. They're probably going to get deals that are five million to ten million because for the Suns, what that does is that makes them a a more uh, more salary in a trade that they can go send out down the line. So there's going to be a lot of interesting things that happen as far as those things go as teams build out their rosters here over the course of the summer,
1: Keith. When you're examining team by team and you factor in the, as Scott mentioned, the cap floor, it's going to be implemented and the way that teams that spend big, like bigger market teams, as we just saw with Atlanta, trying to get out from underneath contracts. As we continue to see that mesh between teams being more willing to spend, but also the higher end spenders trying to get out from under these deals. The value that we just saw in that John Collins trade was effectively get Collins out of town. We don't want to pay him anymore. Okay, you're giving us Rudy Gay and a a draft pick. Okay, fine. Thank you. This burden's finally off us. How more commonplace, if at all, is that type of trade going to be? Not just the trade itself, but the amount of lackluster assets being moved to salary dump.
7: Yeah, we're going to see a handful more of trades li- like that. For example, the Bradley Beal trade. That's you know, basically what Washington did in that deal. Now I know they've turned Chris Paul's uh, contract into Jordan Poole and you no, know, that that's probably a lot. It's dependent on what you feel about Jordan Poole as a player. But the main get for the Wizards was hey, we got out of 200 plus million owed to Bradley Beal over the next four years. Now, they took back, you know, 100 plus million for Jordan Poole. And that's in part because spending, you know, over $100 million in cap space next summer wasn't going to be a real thing that the Wizards were actually going to be able to do. So so they, they said, hey, we'll spend a little bit now, I'll take in a guy like Jordan Poole, who I'm presuming they kind of like, and they Feel like ah, eh, still be tradable down the line, but you're going to see more deals like that. It's if we go back, if you've been following and covering the league for you know maybe more than a decade, it used to be pretty regular that teams were really capped out, and things like expiring contracts were a huge thing that teams wanted. To have because that allowed you to trade them to maybe take in a player whose contract on another team ran two, three years, but you know, questionable for where that other team was headed. That's kind of what we saw in this John Collins trade. Where it was, if you look at it on Facebook, that's all they got for John Collins. <laughs> what they really got was John Collins isn't on the cap sheet anymore.
2: Especially for ownership. That seems to be mandating it. We'll see. But that seems to be the direction that's headed as we're joined here with Keith Smith. Spotrack does a great job covering the NBA and in particular the cap sheets and all the minutia that goes into that. It's very complex and and I think fans in general are caring for it and studying that more than ever. Um, and Keith, let's bring it back local to the Pacers. They really don't have a bad contract on their books. First of all, I think this offseason will be about agreeing to a uh, max contract extension with Tyrese Halliburton. And then after that, I think perhaps consolidating again, perhaps a little bit. Maybe that's likely moving Daniel Tice. Maybe that's moving one of the guards in the backcourt. But you project the team to have about $32 million, and so right now... And currently with just one roster spot, I also wonder, do they offer some kind of J.J. Redick deal for a veteran where you go big for one, two years because you're able to?
7: I love it. You called out the example I use all the time, which is J.J. Reddick. When <laughs> Philadelphia was ready to start winning, finally, right? It was, they paid J.J. Reddick, you know, back then, was that five years ago, I believe, six years ago, they gave him $19 million, and a lot of people were like, whoa, for J.J. Reddick? But the reality was Philly only really had about one, two roster spots to fill, and they had a bunch of which, at that time, $19 million was a good chunk of cap space. They basically said, yeah, we can overpay to fill one spot. If you're the pay Pacers, you're in a great spot here because with 30 million or so in cap space, what you can do is let's. And I'm completely making this up, not reporting. But let's say they love Kyle Kuzma in free agency. They could say, "Hey, you know, okay, your best offer is 20 million dollars from another team. We'll give you 25 million over the next two years. You know, each season, and come in here and fill a huge need. And what that does for the Pacers is you fill a need. But the key is keep the contract short enough. So that if it does turn kind of sour, it's not exactly the perfect fit you had hoped for, you can get out of it very easily within a year or two. And now that's going to be the kind of thing that they're very well positioned to do. Because as you said, they've only got about one, maybe two open roster spots to fill. And, you know, that's a great spot to be in is having a ton of cap space. You know, if you've got... $40 million in space where you've got to fill 10 spots, that doesn't go quite as far as, you know, having 30 with only one or two to fill, and that, that's good. It also is, you know, that's a great piece to have as an extra chunk in a trade. You know, if you, effectively, if you're going to trade Daniel Tice at $9 million, you add him to your $30, 32000000 in cash space, now we can bring in a $40 million player if you wanted to go that route or a couple of, you know, $20 million guys or whatever. So their flexibility is really, really solid in Indiana.
1: Keith, in years past for free agency, there's always been a handful of guys at the very top that have made the market freeze because teams are wanting to bring in a top-tier player and spend a lot of money to do so. But it's a a courtship process that sometimes makes everybody else have to either look around and make a decision if they want to try to go chase lower-to-mid-level guys or if they want to chase those that are at the very top of the board. When you look at this year's free agent class, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, potentially Kyrie Irving... Are any of those names the type that are market freezers? And if so, how does that impact the rest of the league as they're looking to approach free agency this year?
7: Maybe James Harden. We'll, we'll see. If James Harden is serious about entertaining offers from the Rockets, we've heard a couple other teams loosely mentioned. But, but if he's serious about that, uh, then that will kind of hold things up a little bit. Because for Houston, sitting on about $60 million in cap space, they're in a spot to really kind of control a lot of the free agency here because they, they can basically outbid anybody for any one of these guys that's a free agent. And what that could do is the next guy down the list that they want to go after, let's say it's a Chris Middleton or a Brooke Lopez or somebody like that, that could hold them up because they may, you know, say, Hey, hold on. If we can't get hardened, you know, we've got 20, 30 million dollars for you that we can go after and we can try to make that happen. And that tends to be, you know, a little bit of things that hold things up. We're also going to see. Damian Lillard, I think while we've been talking, Chris Haynes reported sounds like he's sitting down with Portland this week yeah. to have a conversation about where, the, where they're going. You know, we'll see. I mean, that's you know, we're we're year you know umpteen of <laughs> Damian Lillard you know trade stuff. But if that turns into Damian Lillard, you know, says all right, you know, put me on the trade market, I want to go. Obviously that'll freeze things quite a bit because what'll happen is everybody's gonna spend at least a little bit of time lining up their best offer for Damian Leward and we'll see where that kind of comes comes together with that. So that that, that has the potential to kind of stall things out a little bit here, at least for, you know, a good chunk of the teams in the league. Okay,
2: doesn't it seem like Dame now? Moving on seems inevitable right. because of who they've drafted, what that roster looks like, and it's one of those. I think it's probably. I think we've talked about this maybe on texts or DMs. It's like like the Pacers were previously. It feels like Portland's past this expiration date.
7: Yeah, I mean it does. Now I will say you're right. You all have. Great experience with Miles Turner has been traded every year for you know, 20 years, <laughs> yeah. right? And then he's never actually been traded. It feels like we're, we're a little bit there with Damian Lillard. But what I will say is Bradley Beal was in that boat. Now he's on the Phoenix Sun, right? So I think we're, we're in a little bit of a similar spot here with Portland. And, you know, I, I, my personal feeling, and this is just, you know, my read of this situation is, Neither Damian Lillard nor the Trailblazers wants to be the one that says, Hey, we you know, this is run its course, let's yeah. break up. Neither one wants to be the bad guy here when I think in reality it's kind of like we all have those friends where it's like, God, would you break up already? Like, you guys don't like each other anymore, you know, and you're just ruining every uh, it for everybody else. It feels like that's a little bit where we're at, but neither side, you know, wants to be the one to actually put it on the table. And we'll, we'll see. It feel, it does feel like they'll work closer than ever because Portland, you know, went young at the draft. They kept their picks. They drafted a guy who overlaps with Damian Lillard positionally. They're in a spot where if they want to hit a hard reset, now's the time to do it.
2: Keith, that comment had me thinking about you know coaches getting fired and the mutual. We have mutually agreed to move on or part ways. It does feel like that that would be honest if it got to that level here. <laughs> Unlike those coaching <laughs> announcements.
7: Yeah, exactly. You know that that would be. You know, I think we. We would all respect it, right, and be like, okay, they're they're finally finally there with with the coaching announcement. I can tell. I won't say who the coach was, but I can tell you, I had a coach tell me once, yeah, and nothing was mutual when they told me you're out of you know a bunch of money that was headed your way. Like there was nothing mutual about that. I wanted it, and they told me, you know, nope, you're not getting it. So, so I think that's uh, you know, there's always a little bit more of a yeah. I don't know how mutual it was unless the guy has an immediate job lined up for the next one. So, but yeah, I'm with you with the Damian Lillard situation. does feel like we are maybe finally there. I I said going into the draft I have a very hard time seeing Damian Lillard and now since since he was drafted Scoot Henderson shooting up and playing games together in Portland. It just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense.
1: Keith, what's your evaluation on a free agent like Kyle Kuzma? Because I've struggled to get a proper read on him, even though he was the best player on a Wizards team that, you know, was what they were last year. But then you try to incorporate, well, what did he look like when he was on a real contender out in LA towards the back end of his tenure there? And well, he wasn't a fully mature player yet, per- perhaps that he needs to do what he did, which is go out and try to spread his wings somewhere in Washington. If he were to end up with a team, let's just say for the sake of argument, like the Pacers, because they're potentially linked to maybe another guard or a forward perhaps, where is the happy medium between his contract evaluation and not overpaying for a player that doesn't have a as clear-cut evaluation as you might like in this free agent class?
7: Yeah, that's kind of the tricky part, right? Because you're evaluating how much of his stats are real versus eh, they're just kind of put up because of the situation. I tend to think they're a little bit more real with Kyle Kuzma just because he's always been a pretty efficient player. He makes most of his shots. He's, you know, a good shooter. Uh, he's pretty good rebounding, better passer than he gets credit for. He's not a great defender, but he holds his own defensively. So I tend to feel, you know, pretty good about Kyle Kuzma. If the team gave him, you know, something in the average annual value of, you know, 25, 26 million a year, it wouldn't surprise me at all. And I think that'd be perfectly fair. And then we'd see that kind of come together, um, you know, here over the, the, you know, life of the deal, I think that would be perfectly fine. Ideally, because he's starting to encroach a little bit, you know, on the age 30 line. Maybe you try to go a little higher on the front end and have it be one of those descending contracts. So if he does fall off at all, it matches that. But I think, you know, even if you go with the standard raises on a deal, you're going to be perfectly fine with him if it averages out of around $25 million or a little bit more. Because I think, you know, you put him in the right spot with the right guys around him you're going to see his efficiency go up even more because then the idea is, hey, he's getting better shots, more wide open looks, and you're getting a really good player. And if you have injuries or anybody's out of the lineup for any reason, you kind of throw him the ball and say, hey, we need you to go get us 25 tonight. And he can make that happen too.
2: Keith, thanks so much for the time. We'll see you out in Vegas, all right? I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Great stuff there by Keith Smith. You can check out his work. at Spotrack does a great job crunching the numbers, explaining – the minutia that you need to understand why teams are doing the deals they are doing like we just saw with Atlanta essentially offloading one of its former first-round picks in John Collins. And, and, Jimmy, I keep going back for this Pacers final roster spot. Tobias Harris strikes me as the guy that would play the role as that J.J. Redick contract because he has one year left over $30 million. The trouble is you'd want to know that you'd have an extension in place or you'd that both sides could make that happen because the last thing you want to do is send out assets. He's here for one year and then walks. Dorian Finney-Smith's under contract, so you know that. He's a guy that Pacers were highly after from Brooklyn. And if neither one of those work out, to me, I think Harrison Barnes, knowing all the connections, the familiarity, and what the Pacers have available, I think he may be your next best option, especially when, I'm pretty sure, P.J. Washington, he's a restricted free agent. So do you want to get back involved in that game, which Herb Simon isn't the biggest fan of? And last year, it didn't quite work out with DeAndre Ayton.
1: I mean, but again, they were saved. They were saved miraculously by not working out with DeAndre Ayton because (laughs) even though from the hype standpoint of the year that Ayton had had before that, and the idea of having a player with as much of name recognition, because he he does still carry that in this league, albeit not at the level of Kevin Durant or Steph Curry or LeBron James or anything like that. But DeAndre Ayton was viewed by many as a very attractive free agent last year, and it would have been one of, if not the biggest free agent signing in Pacers history. But again, he is one of those aging prospects, not from... A standpoint of his literal age just from how the game is played to the point that we're actually having conversations of is DeAndre Ayton really going to be on this son's roster Are they going to keep him just because of nobody wants the amount of money that they're paying him on a yearly basis so those are the two areas I don't want to see the Pacers wind up in I'm not as mad at playing the restricted free agent game as the Simons probably are or how risk averse they want to be with having your funds tied up in that particular area for me it's more so that I like the idea of overpaying a veteran on a short term deal for two for twofold. As you mentioned, you need to get above that cap floor anyway. So you might as well bring in a piece that is going to be able to help not only your team on a nightly basis, but also help in the development of your rookies. And secondly, what I just don't want to have happen is them get caught up and they're a smarter. Their front office is far more intelligent than this to ever happen. You can see it by the way the roster is constructed right now is getting a boat like bottom inconsistent teams in the east are like atlanta where if the deal's too long you're looking for a buyer to sell extremely low two or three years from now that can't be a window that this pacers core is a part of not not if they want to go where they think they can in three four five years from now
2: no because as i'll reiterate next year it's about getting back to the playoffs Mm -hmm. it's about allowing your young guys to experience it for the first time about tyrese about matherin About Miles Turner being back in the postseason once again. Then you hope to retool the roster slightly, add maybe that missing piece, or you hope one of your young guys takes a huge step. That could be Matherin after two years in the league. Maybe what does Jarris Walker look like? Then you hope you're you're contending in the Eastern Conference. Next year, it's about getting back to the postseason. I want to ask
3: this question really quickly because we're talking about wings in the Pacers sure. roster. Where does Kendall Brown fit in all this? Because I know he was a little bit of an uncertainty. I don't know what the status is, yeah. if, if he have, even has
2: a future in the NBA. So he's been at the Pacers facility almost every day. I've seen him a ton, Eddie, during these pre-draft workouts, Tyrese is always almost always there, and Kendall Brown has been the other guy who I've seen most frequently. Kendall right now is still rehabbing from his injury. I don't know where he's at physically. My expectation is that he will play in Summer League. He'll be with the team next week for what they call free agent rookie camp. In terms of what, his, what he looks like in the future, has not been decided because the Pacers need more info. They need to see what he looks like at Summer League. And if he's able to play, if he's able to look healthy, then I think you're most likely looking at him coming back on a one-year deal on a two-way contract once again and kind of treating last year as a rookie contract. But he's a guy I checked in on today, and that's kind of the case with him. It's... We need to see him at Summer League, then we'll make a determination because we're not sure what he looks like against competition. And even last year, he was still very raw. He was like the fourth best player, if that, on the Mad Ants, still trying to find his footing. He said things were really coming quickly, too quickly for him, and that's the case really with all rookies but then he suffered that setback with a stress fracture which required surgery and that's what he's trying to get back from
3: yeah i was just asking because you know he's 20 years old hasn't he can't even legally buy a beer yet and yeah just from that aspect like the pacers are going to have to hit on those kind of players in development just because of where they're at uh, in terms of a market size and just you know the overall uh just interest that big players may not have coming here so i think they have to be able to develop those kind of role players similar to like what Milwaukee has done, and then Toronto back in their heyday. So, yeah, that's why I was asking about him.
2: No, they hope he's part of the future. I think after a a stress fracture injury and something where you had surgery this spring, you're not sure what it looks like and how soon you might be able to contribute, especially as you kind of toss out this last season uh, as a redshirt year is basically what I'm calling it.
1: That's Scott Agnes. I'm Jimmy Cook. Eddie Garrison with us as well. Still to come, we'll end the day with some bets. Next segment, we'll get a quick Reds update with Eddie Garrison. See how he's feeling after the win. I haven't heard <laughs> any cheers comes to an end. <laughs> no cheers well, today. Well, we don't have in-game action today. <laughs> Reds get underway a little bit later this evening. Okay, but we'll get Eddie's pulse on that. And then I believe I could be wrong on this because it's always a revolving door around here. But this might be the last opportunity we get to see Scott before NBA Summer League starts. We'll get Scott Agnes's takeaways. What he's most looking forward to with summer league as we've already d- dived in a little bit to what we expect from free agency a little bit later this week that and more we come back it's the fan midday show 93 1075 the fan
4: whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits long live listening to your favorites learn more about cascali ribocyclib 200 milligrams at kisqali.com and talk to your doctor to see if cascali is right for you
1: Inside the DriveHumor.com studios, it is the Fan Midday Show. Jimmy Cook, Scott Agnes, Eddie Garrison jamming and producing with us throughout the afternoon. We'll also get Eddie's evaluation of the Reds this segment. But first, I want to take a look at NBA Summer League upcoming. Of course, there still is a handful of leagues that take place with summer action. You have the California Classic out there in Sacramento, where this year's lineup appears to be Miami, the Lakers, Charlotte, Golden State, Sacramento, that, that'll that be your your switch there. I guess San Antonio is going to make an appearance there as well, just looking at everything on NBA.com. Salt Lake City, Summer League, and you don't have the whole contingent of the league out there. Memphis, Philadelphia, Utah, clearly. Oklahoma City will round things out there. And then where the big boys, everybody arrives. Las Vegas is truly and as you would expect, because it is a central hub of NBA action in the summer, and they've done a great job building this thing up from the very ground floor, but now it is the place to be, as Scott mentioned, basically a convention for the NBA, July 7th through the 17th, and yeah. that's probably underselling it a bit, because you can literally turn one corner, Mike Breen will be to your left, and all of a sudden, Adrian is over there to your right, breaking news. Bang!
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. We don't have that chime I was going to, hold on, hold on, Eddie, you don't have that as a uh, hotkey? We should. We How do you don't? not? We don't. We don't. You know, that's 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 truly
1: a that, hot key. We we will take an L on on that portion <laughs> of the production side right. of things. I'll I'll wear that as well with Eddie. And hopefully, we put it back in there at some point. You have time. Green's not going to. I was surprised to see him a couple years ago still be involved with Summer League. Now he's kind of staking a step back where it's usually uh, the likes of Ryan Rucco or Mark Jones or Doris Burke. The next wave, there. as it should be. Yes, yeah. absolutely. You're
2: calling the finals for 19 straight years or whatever. you can take a week is. off or two. It's probably fine. On top, by the way, of being the number one option for yep. the New York Knicks in the number one media market, mm-hmm. I think you figured this thing out.
1: Breaks are fine, okay, somewhere.
2: The reality is, all of us get into this business not for. It's for the reps, for the experience, for the chance to call the game. So, yeah, even though I'm sure it's pennies on the dollar what he gets for the finals, we love it. We want to keep doing it. How much easier does it take your process
1: as a beat reporter over the last two or three years with – at least from the Pacers standpoint, Summer League pretty much being consolidated to one event. It's no longer in a practice facility in Orlando that's closed to yep. everybody but scouts and a handful of media members. As as Vegas has become the true destination for every team and the destination for most teams, it's not multiple spots anymore. How does that make your process of it all easier?
2: Everybody's there. Anybody you need is there. Uh, every marquee agent is out there even secondaries are there so essentially like again it's the convention it brings everybody in one place i will say i did prefer the orlando setup because although you had like 10 teams down there no one else big disney world guy no not (laughs) not even that (laughs) jimmy was the fact that it felt like basketball sure whereas in vegas it feels like a production you're waiting for a tv timeout you're having team introductions um you're, you're running into fans on the concourse. Again, in Orlando, you're coming through. You're parking in the parking garage across sure. the street. You're coming in a side door. You're greeted by media relations. You slide in. And I'm basically going from the media room to the gym. And that's it. And so Larry Bird was in the hallway. You just briefly talked to him. I remember when Brad Stevens took the Boston job. I talked to him, and there wasn't fans. There weren't autograph seekers. They weren't selling tickets. Now it's become that big production where – One of the big reasons they have everybody there is every game's on television. Um, Fans, they're selling tickets at $45 Grows the
1: game further in terms of feeling like these summer games matter, even though big picture, they they don't really as long as everybody stays healthy.
2: Which is why I laughed, because during the NBA Finals, which is the best basketball you would hope Mm -hmm. in the world throughout the year... They're advertising one of its poorest products. Hey, come through and watch Summer League upcoming in July. Come on, you know how that works. And I get why it is. It's because ESPN has a stake in it. They want people to watch. There's not much going on in July, so that's an opportunity for those eyeballs. But at the same time, I laughed at the overlap there. I'm like, no, no, no. your diehards who are watching the finals are gonna watch anyway. You don't need to advertise that. But it's gonna be a blast coming up next Friday, not this one. Next Friday the seventh with marquee matchups. Pacers play the eighth and then every other day. So I like the easiness of that where it's game it's it's very game day practice, game day practice for about a week straight. How does your
1: anticipation for this summer league for the Pacers compare to last year when you had Benedict Mather at the floor the forefront, Andrew Nemhard there as well? looking at this year with Ben Shepard and Jairus Walker's name, a few of the rookies that will be out there in Las Vegas.
2: I would say it's similar, if not more, because we want to see how Walker, what he looks like on the court, what he looks like against that light competition. Um, He's cut some weight, still looks very strong out there. How well will Ben Shepard shoot it? Again, though, big picture, I kind of use the hashtag, but remember, it's summer league. Yeah, so it's a if a guy goes off, remember, it's summer league. If a guy looks terrible, it's a little bit of a yellow oh, flag. Oh, sucks. Right. <laughs> but it's Straight also up. just summer league. I think it was like Tyler Hansborough. I want to say he crushed it at Orlando Summer League. Oh, gosh. What did that mean? Well, Josh McRoberts crushed it. I think it's Summer League, and then on the other side, maybe even like TJ Leaf didn't have a good Summer League, and yeah, I don't know. It, there's not too much you can take out of it. More than anything, it's great because it's an opportunity to get in front and talk to so many people at the. Same event, so I'm sure. For example, Kelvin Sampson will be there from Houston to watch Jerris Walker play. It'll give me a chance to talk with him. I talked with Mark Few, Gonzaga's coach, mm-hmm. about Andrew Nimhardt. Otherwise. I'm guessing he's not going to take that phone call and do that interview, but because I'm there, we had just watched Andrew play. It was an opportunity for me and thus readers to learn a little bit more about what Andrew was like. We
3: can't wait for Oscar Sheebway to have
2: like 15 and 18, and everyone starts like, "Oh, next White Howard, <laughs> put him on the 15 man roster." Eddie, yeah. yeah, he goes for 20 20 blocks in back to back games plus, or 20 rebounds in back to back games plus three blocks. You're going to have people calling for that, but remember. It's summer league.
1: Where do you find, as you're looking at the different courts of Cox Pavilion and Thomas and Mack out there in Las Vegas, this is also an opportunity as well. We mentioned all the games don't really matter, but if you're a player that has signed a undrafted contract or assigned a contract with a summer league team as a second or third year player, yep. you're still trying to make an impact to potentially gain a contract. With that one roster spot, do you anticipate that evaluation period being any different for the Pacers than it would be other teams that aren't just focused on their guys that are there, but the players on other teams that are looking for homes.
2: I think you have to treat it the same every year, regardless of what your current situation is, because you never know when it might change, or right. when it, think about Utah. There was This was a team with cap flexibility, Well, now they kind of got rid of that flexibility by taking on John Collins' contract. Same thing with the Wizards. They were going to have some flexibility. But by taking on Jordan Poole's contract, that kind of tweaks their offseason plans. And so I think you have to come into it with an open mind and trying to find a player or two who, if you have space, you might sign, and if you can get under your control with your G League program, or maybe one two-way. And again, teams this year, starting July 1, can sign up to three players for two-way contracts, not just two. So that opens 30 new roster spots that have to be filled here. And so uh, you already have one filled with the, with um, Oscar from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. There's one set for sure. Kendall Brown is in line, I think, for one of them. And Isaiah Wong probably, although I haven't got clarity on his situation just yet. But also maybe, maybe – A player is waived by one of these teams that just needs to clear cap space. Things like that. That's another reason why I think this Pacers team still needs to consolidate the roster some, Jimmy, because I want to get it down I think to the start of camp, they should bring in the full 21 guys that you can bring to camp. But I think it would be smart play for them to leave one roster spot open going into the next year, knowing a player may randomly get waived or pick up call a guy up from a two-way contract and, and see what he's able to contribute right away without having to waive a guaranteed contract.
1: We talked a little bit already about the free agency ripple effects that are going to take place as everything gets underway. But as you look at the rest of the Pacers roster, is there a name that jumps out at you of those that are participating in Summer League that has the most to gain in terms of roster positioning or evaluation going into the season it's obviously not going to be the top tier of the class of Jairus Walker or Ben Shepard but where is the most to be
2: gained as you kind of look at the names that have come out for who's going to be on this roster for the Pacers yeah and in previous years remember like Aaron Neesmith was acquired Mm -hmm. midway through summer league and finished and played like two games with him and that ended up being tough for him because he didn't know anyone didn't know the plays none of that and didn't look good and again, that was a situation where it came to the regular season and looked sharp. We don't know exactly what the roster will look like. I would I'm curious if Isaiah Jackson, if Chris Duarte, this would really be their last year to participate in summer league. I do not expect it. Um, but those two would have a lot to gain with getting a couple games in. And if, wouldn't it wouldn't it be interesting to see Ben Shepard, Chris Duarte? I can't imagine Andrew Nimhard would play either with Matherin.
1: Not to read too much into it, but if Duarte was participating, that would also give him another opportunity to show, even if it is Summer League, his health status and what he would bring to an NBA roster. I don't want to read too much into it, but if he was a part of that roster, would that give any... More movement or rumblings towards the idea of him being a, a movable piece around this time.
2: No, I think it would tell me he just wants reps. He sure. wants to get out there, play um, real competition. I don't expect dorte and Isaiah Jackson right. to participate. It would be a
1: rarity if they did. You exactly. don't usually see it unless it's a player that's again truly either not close to journeyman territory, but somebody that is trying to reshow themselves as a valuable piece on another stage.
2: Yeah, usually if you're a veteran. Meaning like beyond one year, your court side. <laughs> there, there's been some issue or, or you or you didn't get an opportunity right. to show what you could do. And Kendall Brown, for example, is the perfect example there. And so I would love to see what Kendall Brown is able to contribute and then see what Shepard, what Jairus Walker do for probably just a couple of games. Maybe you push Shepard and and Walker into three games. I struggle to see them playing four. And then you bring in other guys, and Isaiah Wong playing for your team. Um, there's been a couple other guys that have agreed to just summer league deals trying to earn a place in training camp. That's where I also am more of a fan of what we used to have, Jimmy, with the Orlando Summer League, because these guys, their job's on the line. And so it kind of, it's kind of awkward to me when, like, during the first time out, you got an MC there, hey, look up, here's this contest. It's like, hey, this guy's this guy's basically going through a job interview. Sure. But and, in a
1: way, that it's simulating real league atmosphere. No. From
2: that respect, you're right. Yeah, it is. Um, so I, I think, as usual, it's just those rookies. You want to see. You want to get a taste of can they look comfortable out there? It's less so about the numbers they put up. How quickly do they fit in? I want to see Shepherd's basketball IQ, read, react. How does he look defensively? Can he hold his own? And then I, I fully expect him to knock down shots, even though there is that. Uh, you got to adapt a little bit to the further line from the college three to the NBA three usually takes guys about a half a season
1: just going off of the casual fan or just normal viewer perspective, not the media perspective. And, and that's why yeah. what Albert Hall and Warren Legary have been able to build out there in Las Vegas is so appeasing to the fans. Look, even as a diehard basketball fan, it was tough turning on NBA TV to a crew I really didn't recognize in a practice gym in Orlando with an atmosphere that felt like it was something you were watching (laughs) at the Y From a media perspective. I'm right there with you. The access was, was tremendous and a different feel for it than Las Vegas. But for the consumer standpoint, even if it is the same product of it's just summer league, I mean, you would agree as well as anybody that there's just the whole vibe of the spectacle of the entertainment aspect in Las Vegas I know the numbers still aren't like, they're not touching NBA playoff games by any means, but it is a more
2: palatable product when you see it out there in Las Vegas. If you're a big Pacer fan or NBA fan, I'd encourage you to go out to Summer League sometime. And if you do, though, don't wait until like after the first weekend. It's important to go that first weekend because those top players, that's when you're going to have the chance to see them. And so you might see Victor Wimbanyama versus Scoot Henderson in game one. And then they might be shut down or something. Over so make under sure two and a half, by the way. Under. For for Victor? Yes. Okay. Uh, absolutely. That no, is I thought you said two under. earlier. I just wanted to... To me, that is easy under. Okay. Might be one, probably two. Um, Especially because... Jimmy, he's been playing all summer long. While these guys have been going through the pre-draft yeah. process, that he was trying to me. be winning a title over in France. I respected
1: the Spurs allowing him to do that, but that—I mean—that's so rare when you see. They the also don't prospect. have any. Right, they can't say, say hey, don't do
2: it. Right, he's not under their rights. Just, but I'd be yet.
1: worried if I was him, because like I'm not saying he wouldn't have still gone number one, but I mean, Here,
2: Well, first of all, I can tell you if he, the execs are saying like, if this guy tore his ACL or had some other injury, he's still going number one. He's that significant of a player and game changer. Secondly, the other thought to all that is Victor could just as easily or any player for that matter, get injured going through a pre-draft workout. Sure. Shane Winnington, a former Pacer now back working with the team. He suffered an injury that required surgery. It happened during a pre-draft workout. So there's no safe haven. There's no safe way to go about this. And so, if anything, you just prefer him playing significant competition and pushing himself. And I think that says a lot about him that though he was inevitably going to be the number one pick, he was still putting himself out there and probably didn't want to let his teammates down either. They built that team for him, yeah. for him to get to the NBA. And I'm sure you saw over the weekend that fantastic photo uh, in San Antonio of the greats yes. getting together for a dinner. And I can't I would love to be like a tape recorder sitting right there in yep. the middle of the table with Sean Elliott, Tim Duncan, David Robinson, yep. Victor, and am I missing Yeah, I think that's it.
3: I Incredible
1: can't remember line-up.
2: I did see the
3: video of him missing shots too.
2: <laughs> but remember, it's summer. <laughs> hey,
3: he's unguarded. Scott there's, there's there's no there's no rumor, there's no uh you All can't right. make any exceptions. Eddie, let's you, Let's, unguarded let's you an open and me gym. go
1: on a 3-day bender and then let's go to an open uh, availability media shoot around and see how we do.
3: Okay. <laughs> I bet I bet you I can make 2. I may need the glass, but I'll make 2.
2: <laughs> Those guys are so worn out. Less so, Victor, because he didn't do the true pre-draft process, but he was actually playing games. The difference is the pre-draft process, a lot of these guys might be flying to 14 different cities over a month's span. They are drained, plus the emotional toll it takes. They're drafted. Those that are eligible probably had a few cocktails, took the private jet, and it's 9 a.m., and they have to be on and answering questions. I don't envy that. That's tough, but they're also getting paid handsomely.
1: (laughs) We'll take our final break. When we come back, we'll hand out some bets and deliver on our promise of getting a Red's pulse from one Eddie Garrison here on The Fan.
4: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclib 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
2: Back for the final time here on the Fan Midday Show with Jimmy Cook. I'm Scott Agnes. Jimmy, I feel like since we only have a few minutes left, I got to give you at least your platform here to discuss the Reds. I can't add anything to this conversation, but go ahead.
1: To be clear... That's not my platform. I'm the resident Yankee fan. It's Eddie Garrison that's been been carrying the uh, carrying the flag. Eddie uh, at one point a 12 game win streak. Yes, sir. First cycle since 1989 from Ellie De La Cruz, but they dropped two straight to the Braves. At the end of that. How do you bottle up that win streak and what's next for the Reds as they begin a new series this evening?
3: So they start they're in Baltimore tonight in case you were wondering or you forgot who they were playing. They're in Baltimore tonight to start three game series. I think it's just remarkable that they even made it that far. When you consider they're missing their top two pitchers from their rotation to start the season in Hunter Green and Nick Lodolo, And now it's being reported that th- it was already for sure that Hunter Green would probably, or Nick D- Lodolo would be out until like August. And now Seatrick uh, Rosecrans at the Athletic is reporting that Hunter Green will also be out until August. So it's not looking good right now for that red starting rotation. The bullpen has been solid, but they're starting to get to that point, Jimmy, where they've been relied on so much during the early part Mm -hmm. of the season now that you're approaching the halfway point and if they're legit about making a postseason run, they're going to have to be active at the deadline, which is less than a month away, I think, to get some starting pitching uh, because you can't afford to roll the guys out that you're rolling out right now who are only going three, four innings.
1: When we started the season... You, like many Reds fans, and I don't blame you at all because you hear from any of their front office or higher-ups their feelings overall about the fans and the amount of money they're willing to spend or lack thereof recently. But the tune has changed because of the fact that they're within first place, or in first place rather, the central, and they are at a spot that no one envisioned them being. As you look at where the roster is right now, Eddie, but knowing that it is very hard in baseball, to make the playoffs and be in a position to contend right now, do you want them to be aggressive big spenders?
3: I would love them to because they have so many young guys and they have a clog right now in the middle infield. They have a lot of middle infielders that – Uh, They can move around. They've got some tantalizing prospects that they can move as well. I mean, they've got a couple outfielders that are going to be really promising. They've got some role guys in the lineup right now, like Nick Sigzel, who can be easily moved because he's a guy that a team like a Houston or, or an L.A. like the Dodgers or another team out west. Could be in the search for because he is a he's a utility guy. He can play outfield. He can play third base. He hits lefties really well. He's got the top average against lefties in the MLB. So they have they have some opportunities here to move some players, move some prospects to get some pitching.
1: NBA free agency is right around the corner. I want to get Scott's final thoughts before that process gets underway. But first, let's give out some bets.
0: The Jay Cook Plays of the Day.
7: This is me, all right? I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- boy way. This is how I win.
1: Today's Plays of the Day. Group play still ongoing in the race for the CONCACAF Gold Cup. Give me Panama over Costa Rica. That's a tie, no bet. So if this thing goes to his draw, you're getting your money pushed back to you there. In baseball, going to lay one and a half on the Seattle Mariners as they host the Washington Nationals. And give me the Cincinnati Reds on the money line at plus 105 against the Baltimore Orioles. Eddie, what do you like this evening?
3: I'm going to go in that red scheme. I'm going to stick with the offense. I'm going over 10, like I was just talking about. That Reds bullpen and pitching staff, they are just beat up right now. They're weak. Offense has been clicking, uh, I think, combined 15-plus in the last three games against the Atlanta Rams going over 10 there and then uh, I don't like any other games really tonight I think it's a good pitching matchup in Atlanta between the Braves and the Twins though Uh, Spencer Strider and Sonny Gray so 8.5 is probably about where I'd put it. Any rooting interest in the College World Series for either of you? Oh man I have loved this one. I love LSU. Paul Skeens, he's going to go number one overall in the MLB draft which is in a couple weeks so I really like the game tonight Go Tigers!
1: Minus 160 (laughs) if you're interested in backing LSU Scott, this will be the last time that we talk to you before NBA Summer League we already hit on that, but also before NBA free agency starts, at about 90 seconds here, as yeah. you kind of reassess the day for biggest need, is Barnes your front runner? Is there is there a key piece in your mind? Maybe not for the franchise, but what you would like to see them do?
2: Yeah, it's it's at that three spot. I think you kind of shored up a little bit, at least that power forward with Jarrus Walker, but you really need a three and D wing to add to to the fold here. You got Aaron Nesmith, Jordan Moore has shown that he's capable. I would love more of a defensive minded 3 and that's why if, if it's up to me I really like Dorian Finney-Smith. Very good contract. I think it's like 13-14 million. He's under control for several years. That makes a lot of sense. If if in the trade market you want a, a one year big spending type guy, that's Tobias Harris for sure. And if you can't really swing any of those, although I think a trade has to happen, there's at least a player or two. Ideally, you trade a couple of guys. Then you're really looking at probably Harrison Barnes in the free agent market. He's
1: Scott Agnes. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at Scott Agnes. You can follow where he has his work at Fieldhouse Files. And, of course, subscribe to that newsletter as well. One of 107.5 is the very own. Glad to have you on board again.
2: Yeah, good to be back in the saddle with you after the draft, man.
1: Special thanks to Brian Nash, Bo Estes, and Keith Smith. Podcast will be up. Just search the fan midday show wherever you get your podcast. Right with JMV is next. Keep it right here.